As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success. As sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. How was that for you? Was that all right? Was that different? It was, it was okay. Yeah, it was a little more antagonistic than I expected. Uh, I'm not, sorry. That, that's not, not so much that um, you were... Uh, uh, mean or or you know it was just what i didn't realize that you would have an arsenal of, of of information and anecdotes to answer not always directly what the things that i, that I put forward in in a kind of refutation i'm here with douglas lane of zero books how's it going man going pretty well i mean how's actually in 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 fact i should say i'm i always say it's doing very well when you ask that kind of question because it's uh uh, it's not. It's the kind of question that people don't literally mean most of the time. That's like saying hello. But I should point out that um, at Zero Books, we recently lost a, a major voice, uh, the author and um, podcaster or YouTube uh, personality, Michael Brooks, died um, the day before yesterday. Uh, so when I say I'm doing very, very well, and in fact, I'm sort of lying. I, I, I am upset about the loss of, of Michael Brooks. Um, so, but I'm otherwise in my own, you know, small, smaller sphere doing just fine. Sorry to hear about that. Um, can you tell us and our audience a little bit as to who Michael Brooks was, what he meant to you, uh, what he meant to Zero Books? Yeah, Michael Brooks was uh, the co-host of the Majority Report with uh, uh, Sam Cedar 
uh, although probably he would hate that I started with that because he was also the host of his own show called uh, TMBS, which stood for The Michael Brooks Show. He was the author of a book for us called Against the Web. He had written for uh, newspapers and, and uh, magazines like Jacobin. He just started a, a, a new series with uh, uh, Anna Kasperian, I think it's her name, over at the Young Turks, but this time for Jacobin Magazine's new YouTube channel. Um, and he was a, a, a democratic socialist, he said, uh, with a more of a Marxist bent than, than most. He did a show called TMBS, which really focused on the international political scene as well as um, just US politics. Uh, he was a really funny guy. Uh, he was a lot more charming than most people on the left. Um, uh, he was not, uh, he was 37 years old and he uh, died from, uh, I guess, some sort of blood clot or just it was a sudden freak kind of medical accident that took him from us on um, Monday. And uh, I mean, really, I, it's, he was just, it would be the last person I expected to, to die. Uh, and, and he was someone who so clearly had a long, uh, fruitful career ahead of him. He was ambitious. He was politically ambitious for the left, and he was and he was personally ambitious. And he was just hungry to go. He was ready to go. He had so many things that he was planning, and so many things he had already done. So it, it was a, a real tragedy um, that he that he died on. on I mean, I'm still trying to take it in. It's it, a shock. I'm sorry to hear that, man. Yeah. But I just wanted to let, you know, I guess I, I, I feel obligated to uh, mention him at the start uh, uh, because he was so important to so many people. Um, and he was an important author for us. Uh, his book Against the Web um, was already heading to be a bestseller. Uh, perversely, now it will certainly be uh, yeah. uh, a bestseller. But he had a lot more um, books in him and ideas in him. And uh, so it's, it's, it's very sad to see him go. Um, but we don't have to continue on uh, talking about Michael Brooks, but I yeah. thought I should mention Okay, that. let's let's talk about you. So what would you classify yourself as for the people who are watching if you want to put yourself into a label? Well, I'm, I'm some kind of Marxist. Um, it depends on which Marxist you ask as to what I am. It's I'm some slur or another from some other sectarian group. So like I'm a Marxist humanist by those who uh, are maybe a more politically minded Marxist, or I'm a left com by uh, people who have more of a focus on taking state power. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, whereas otherwise people might call me like uh, people who are so democratic socialists or, or a little bit to what I consider to be my right might think of me as like a tanky and, uh, you know, uh, out, out of this world, unrealistic Marxist. Um, but what I mostly am is somebody who has been on the left his entire adult life, but after 2009 or 2008, um, uh, I became interested in trying to understand the economic situation because of the economic crisis. And I started podcasting uh, shortly after that and in interviewing Marxist economists and, and Marxist thinkers uh, slowly but surely along the way. I mean, I interviewed a lot of different people on the left and uh, a lot of different people, including like mystics and artists and, and, and so on. But I more and more became interested in a, a Marxist analysis of the economic crisis of 2008. And that led me to 
uh, read Marx and to kind of uh, believe the uh, explanations that I found uh, in, in books like Capital uh, or the Critique of the Gotha Program or, uh, you know, the, even in the Communist Manifesto to some degree, I, I want to, or the German ideology, I want to like prove my bona fides here and name enough the Marxist yeah, yeah. texts. Is but, this when you started Zero Books or did that come before? Oh, it came before. I was a podcaster uh, for about five years before I started at Zero Books. And I didn't start Zero Books. Zero Books started around the same time as I started podcasting. A guy named Tariq Goddard and, uh, well, really a guy named Tariq Goddard started the imprint in the UK. Uh, it was under a company called John Hunt Publishing or JHP. And uh, he he be started the 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 imprint and it was mostly filled with people who were left wing and or philosophical or theoretical bloggers um, and so they were getting they were academics but they weren't only publishing in academic journals they were trying out this new blogosphere and those people started writing books for for zero books eventually uh, people like Graham Harmon um, and Mark Fisher became big names for zero books uh, and then around 2014, there was a falling out between the management uh, of John Hunt Publishing and the old crew at Zero Books. They left, and uh, one of the, their authors recommended to me a guy named David Blacker, who had written a book for them called The uh, Falling Rate of Learning, I believe. Um, or he, he recommended that I apply for the job, and um, I, I was hired uh, based on the writing I had already submitted to them. I had a book accepted by Zero Books and based on my track record as a podcaster. And and frankly, I think that in that political moment, uh, in, in terms of like John Hunt Publishing, they were glad to take anybody who would do the job because there had been such a fallout. <laughs> so I, I, I was uh, the guy who stepped up to the plate after Tariq left. Well, you mentioned that uh, in the crash of 2008, you started reading Marx and uh, you're trying to understand what happened I'm curious, where were you coming from before then? How would you describe your ideological persuasion before 2008? I was, um, you know, I, in, in the 90s, I had uh, become interested in the Situationist International. I was a science fiction writer, and I still am. My last novel came out in 2018. Um, so I, I was interested in, you know, as a young man, uh, and the ideas of Situationist International, but also like people like Noam Chomsky, maybe some Terrence McKenna thrown in. Um, uh, I was sort of like an ad busters anarchist. That's how I would put myself, that's me, you know, insulting my younger self. But What's an ad buster? Uh, well, ad busters is a magazine uh, in, in the United States that um, takes a, a kind of anti-consumerist line. Uh, it was, started by a, a new left 60s radical in the 80s or 90s and uh, it's very glossy and slick and they run these uh, parody ads in the magazines trying to critique society and the culture of consumerism. Um, I see, I see. So you yeah. were a rebellious anti-capitalist type before 2008, but you wouldn't call yes. it Marxist before then. And then no. you started to get into the philosophy of Karl. Good old Carl. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it was because I realized that the kind of uh, more utopian politics I had up until that point, where I was most concerned about uh, changing people's consciousness and um, uh, 
attacking hierarchies and um, and let's face it also just was somewhat using the radical chic of the left as a way to distinguish myself as a writer, uh, or at least that's what I hoped. Um, I realized none of that was going to do when there was actual material crisis. Uh, and I was looking at, at the time I was working at Comcast as a, a sales rep. Uh, and I was thinking I, I might not last on the job and there weren't a lot of other prospects. And, and that was at actually the same time that my first novel was accepted by Macmillan. Um, back in 2007 is when that novel was accepted. It took until 2013 for it to actually come out. Um, so that was another reason why I was looking to Marx was because I looked at the publishing world, which was in crisis and like New York editors were being fired in droves um, and they were going into business for themselves as uh, book editors and, um, you know, for, for self-published authors and, uh, my own editor at Tor was let go uh, shortly after my book came out. So I was thinking like, oh, this whole career idea of being a kind of uh, middle range novelist along with, um, you know, whatever other kind of work I had to pick up to su support myself doesn't look like it's going to be working out, even though I did get a book contract. Um, I'd written some short stories before that point. Uh, and my, like my first book came out in 2006, uh, which was a short story collection and that kind of thing. Well, you know, there's a there's an old co connection there, right, between uh, science fiction science fiction writers and Marxists, right? Like Bogdanov with the Red Star. Yeah, yeah. Have you read that one? The I haven't, but I've read Society. Yeah, I, I haven't read that particular uh, book, although I know I should. But yes, I do think of um, science fiction as uh, the literature of ideas, and I was a philosophy major in. in college back in the early 90s uh, so I, I, I came to science fiction out of uh, uh, the for the same reasons I came to the left I think which was a feeling of displacement of wanting to figure out what life was not thinking that the kinds of answers that were readily available to me were very useful I think a lot of uh, you know young people go through that uh, no matter where they end up politically but I ended up on the left Okay, now people who listened might have tuned out as soon as you said you're a Marxist. So let's get this straight. Oh, really? I, well, I'm in a different room than I'm used to because everyone in the you know kind of circles I run in is like, oh yeah, he's not Marxist enough. But anyway, go ahead. Right, right. What I mean is that they're just waiting for the question that I'm about to say, which is given that the countries who have said that they're motivated by Marxism failed. Now you may disagree with that premise and we can- No, I don't. There. Okay, given that they failed, and it seems invariably so. How can you call yourself, how do you, why do you still call yourself a Marxist without also calling yourself someone who's worthy of odious, despicable, despicableness? Well, I have a, uh, you know, I may be worthy of odious despicableness or whatever, but it's not because I'm a Marxist. You know, I, I have all sorts of flaws. Um, uh, but uh, here, here's my, quick answer to that is that I don't see Marxism as separate from the uh, project of modernity or um, the Enlightenment project. Uh, and I think that that, that whole project of, of turning away from traditional society, becoming uh, more scientific, uh, trying to be more self-directed as uh, not just individually, but as a society, um, uh, taking hold of our social relations, um, questing after freedom, all of it has an uneven record. 
so that'd be my first thing. It's like we are the, if you if you want to condemn Marxism, you should probably condemn the American Revolution as well. You should probably condemn modernity. You know, you, you should probably try to turn back towards a more traditional society, and then you'll find there's plenty of things to condemn there. So, but the 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 more specific answer would be that I don't look at the Russian Revolution or revolutions in China or or many of the other attempts at socialism as having been complete or uh, uh, successful, like, uh, and, and if you look at the Soviet Union, neither did the Soviet officials. Like, even Stalin admitted that they were still operating under basically a capitalist logic. Um, the, there was never a moment where they broke free from uh, what they would say was called bourgeois society. Right. Uh, I mean, after 1917. They, 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 right, their, right. Their, their, goal, their goal was to actually develop the capitalist relations that hadn't really even been developed yet in the, so in the Soviet Union or in, in Russia, so that they could then quickly become socialist and transcend capitalist relations. But they never did. Go ahead. When does when does Stalin say that? Because there's that net period, right? Uh, new economic policy under right. Uh, Lenin, you know, he was not down with that. Uh, at least he was kind of two-faced on the matter. And afterwards, though, when he was in power, uh, would, did he say that? What, like, you I'm know, sure I don't remember exactly. Said, like, I, I don't uh, remember exactly when he really admitted he was still uh, that the Soviet Union was still operating under the law of value. But it was in the, it was towards the end of his time and power. It was in the, I think, early fifties is what I would if I'm remembering correctly, but the, it, even Lenin didn't think that, um, like they believed in transitional program. They believed in developing capitalist relations that capitalism was a, a stage on the way towards socialism. Um, and so, uh, Lenin would never have said that he achieved even socialism or the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, and so, I mean, I, that's my understanding that, that, that it was, uh, there was still revolution to be done after they took power. And go ahead. Lenin's uh, thesis, right, was that was the big debate between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. Um, they were both, as you said, and it really demonstrates your knowledge, right, that uh, Marxists did believe that capitalism was a transitional stage. Uh, so you would find Marxists who were like, hey, uh, what's the best way to get Marxists? More capitalists. So let's support the industry, you know? Hey, how do you get angry workers? Exploitative CEOs. Keep them coming. Capitalism, keep them coming. Right. This is and, like, but it goes yeah. back to the uh, early, the late 19th century um, and the Social Democratic Party in Germany and the debates between Rosa Luxemburg and uh, Edward Bernstein or Edward Bernstein or whatever, how you ever pronounce that. But he was... He felt, especially after the long depression of the 19th century, didn't produce a workers' revolution that, um, that really the best fit way to get to socialism was through the evolution of capitalism. But he was a, he was a Marxist, right? Um, and Rosa Luxemburg thought that capitalism would go into crisis and that the Workers' Party had to be prepared for that crisis in order to help the working class achieve socialism uh, when the opportunity was there through a revolutionary struggle. I side with Rosa in that debate, but it's, it's far away from 
where we are right now, although maybe in, who knows where we'll be in two months. But, um, but we're certainly not prepared for anything like that. But yeah, working out what went wrong in the Soviet Union uh, isn't something that's been fully done, at least not in my head. I don't think anyone quite on, on the Marxist left uh, agrees or has a consensus on it. And I don't think there's a consensus on it in the historical literature either. Okay. Uh, but the one thing I would say is just to, to recall that this is not a separate, Marxism is not a separate project from the project of the, and the enlightenment and of modernity. It's just- uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Just to interject, some people mm -hmm. would say, well, you know, the, par the, the process of going through history and then analyzing why has Marxism failed has not been complete. Well, but to those on the left or the extreme left or whatever we want to call it, the Marxist side, it seems like the diagnosis of the West's failures due to capitalism is a complete project. And they're, they're willing to make that much quicker than they're willing to say why the projects that they particularly like, that is the Marxist projects, haven't failed. So why do you think there is that discrepancy or do you disagree with the premise? Um, well, first of all, I don't believe that if you look carefully that there's even a lot of agreement on the critique of capitalism on the Marxist left. I happen to know the right critique because I, you know, have my own quixotic sectarian perspective, but yeah, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding in a way, but I'm only half kidding. But, um, uh, but no, there well, isn't even I have a lot a of agreement. That every, I have a theory that everyone thinks they're right. Even people who are humble, they think they're right in their humbleness. So if they say, I don't know, then you believe that you don't know. So no matter what. That's true. That is true. But I think that's, I'll grant people that amount of hubris. Um, but the, the, uh, what, what I would say is, okay, so the question was, why are Marxists so quick to know, say they know what's wrong with capitalism, but not so, but are slow to say they understand why the revolution failed. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and look, there's, there's a real kernel of truth to that, to the skepticism in that question, because the uh, operations of capitalist society are very complex um, and require uh, serious study. And most of what calls itself the Marxist left has not, not only uh, hasn't fully worked out its critique or uh, uh, really uh, has a, a solid critique of capitalist relations uh, to back it up, but even more doesn't even really have much of a definition of capitalism at all, or think that doesn't think about capitalism as a set of social relations around production or an economic set of, of relations. Um, and that's- it's totally, oh, sorry. Say again? No, please, please continue. Okay, but, all right. So, so what, I, what I'll say is that's due largely to the failures that we're talking about and, and failures after. The, the, the fact that uh, the Marxist project has set, been set back like time and time again has meant that what calls itself the left of the United States uh, has mostly put Marx, Marxist analysis to the side, even when it calls itself Marxist. Um, uh, but I, I happen to think that uh, the strongest part of, of the Marxist literature is his critique of capitalist relations, is his turn towards uh, materialism uh, as a, a, a form of uh, uh, basically a materialistic social relation. In other words, the kinds of relations we have with each other when we're cooperating to create the things we need um, in the world. So the hierarchical relations are the, the structures of relations and the, and the social aims that we take up 
as we produce ourselves and, and reproduce ourselves and reproduce the world. Um, and that just means, you know, we go to work every day, we make things that we are going to consume, we make things for the market, all of that. He, uh, I happen to think that his critique of those relations are the best around and that um, if you start from there, there's the potential for uh, achieving the kinds of society that, uh, you know, people like uh, Thomas Locke or John Stuart Mills or, um, uh, or others you know, uh, were after, that a, a, a society where people as individuals are free and they're free to the extent that they can also influence the social collective. Um, so just to go off of that uh, subject for the individualism, uh, communism's relation to liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a line in uh, Dostoevsky's Demons, where uh, a story about uh, some Marxists who take over a small town in in uh, Russia, and one of them is a Marxist by the name of Piotr, and he's trying to convert people to Marxism, and he's building these little clubs. Another character asks him, you know, why is it? Why do they turn? Why do they become Marxists? How do you? How does that happen? Right? And he turns to that character and he says, well, you know, the, the best strategy is you go to these liberals and you say, you're not liberal enough. And then they become uh, Marxists. You're not, you're not radical enough, right? You're not uh, fulfilling modernity as much as you claim to be fulfilling it. And there's right. a sense that Marxism is that sort of trash. Uh, but I, I want to press on that claim, right? Okay. Uh, Marxists and liberals didn't necessarily get along. Capitalism was a transitional uh, phase. What is it, why do you believe that uh, Marxism is the, let's say, realization of liberalism? Well, uh, I mean, listen, I, I get a lot of heat from that, uh, from other Marx, uh, you know, other Marxists hate it when I say that kind of thing, because I think I'm granting way too much to, I don't know, what's the white cisgendered patriarchal Western discourse or it's, something. It's what Marxists <laughs> traditionally believe, though, so I'm shocked that they would find a problem with that with you, right? Well, as I say, you know, we're not in a, the, Marxism is mostly dead, but, uh, um, but, Amen. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Uh, uh, but, uh, why do I think that um, there's been conflict between liberals and Marxists in the past? Is that Well, is that what I'm question? saying is, is, why is it that Marxism is the successor? So we're talking about Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, right? Um, Mensheviks, right. they... Well, I'm not really talking about Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. I'm talking about, like, Marx and Engels and, oh, well, and maybe Rosa Luxemburg and, and you know, uh, and some of the 19th century people. I mean, I, uh, to be honest, my, uh, my understanding of uh, the debates, the specific debates between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, beyond, you know, the, the need for a revolutionary struggle or the, the, the degree of parliamentarism they can be or cooperation with bourgeois parties. Um, you know, I, I, that's about as much as I could say that that was well, about. The, the debates, right, like Marxists love history, right? They're the scientists of history, self-proclaimed right. at the time. So yeah. uh, to go to history, um, to understand Marxism, I think would be yeah. fruitful. There's uh, a debate between Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, which is, okay, we start with, and this said, you know, this is said in the Communist Manifesto, right? We start right. with tribal societies, we go to feudal societies, we go to capitalism, and then the revolution, we go to Marxism. 
Um, the, the debate between Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, one of them, was, okay, where are we now? And for Russia specifically, they couldn't decide whether or not they were feudal or in the capitalist era. Right. Lenin comes out with his great paper, uh, look at how much land the peasants have, you can see it's unequal, we are in the era of capitalism, the time is now. <laughs> and right. you know, and it's, it puts them to like the, the Bolsheviks. So what I'm curious of is when you look at our society now, uh, let alone will we achieve true Marxism, have we achieved true capitalism is my question for you. Have we? Okay. So because if it's I, predicated on that, what would be true capitalism? Well, okay. I think we should distinguish between the bourgeois values of freedom and equality and fraternity and, and uh, the breaking of, of fetters uh, from traditional society, those kinds of liberal values and um, the value and, and capitalism as a set of social relations, because capitalism um, is the, the very thing that makes liberal values unachievable in so much as it sets up material relations that require inequality, uh, competition, uh, and, and, and even the slowdown of development of technological advances. Um, so so that's, that's what the difference is between like bourgeois values and capitalism. Capitalism is a, a, a questing after uh, basically the increase of labor time as, as embodied in commodities and uh, it, that's what's directing our uh, social life, really, is the uh, buying and selling of commodities and chasing after this abstract value. That's a measure of the amount of time that people are working. It also requires like a working class that doesn't own its own means of production or doesn't have control over the things that it, it produces. Yeah, um, Doug, I, I couldn't agree more on, yeah. on that regard, right? There's a, a line in the Marxist Catechism uh, from, yeah. the, from the London Society of Marxists. Yeah. Uh, and in this catechism, it was what they would tell the, the new recruits, the new comrades, yeah. uh, in order to train to be Marxists. They said, what is uh, capitalism? And they, they say very clearly, it's, we think it's written by Engels, very clearly. He says, oh, well, uh, listen, there was a time in history where we didn't have industrial machines. Then we got industrial machines. Two types of people. You either own the machines, or you work with the machines and right. it's one or the other. And there's this right. huge divide that happens. Um, my right, which is why is, they, we Marxists want to get rid of the division of labor to some degree or another and, and have people. How, how, what do you think is the way to do it? How do we, how do we get rid of it? Right. Like get my well, Molotov cocktail. Like what's the solution? Maybe sometimes. I don't think you can say um, that there's only one path towards uh, a Marxist revolution. And Marx himself had different ideas based on the different conditions. Uh, what if we paint so some specifics for our time and our context? Yeah. Well, if four or three or two, if you don't, if you don't want, if you're. Okay. Well, I, I um, look, Marx the, first thing, applied. The, the first thing you have to do is understand that the left's project is to expand the power of working people primarily. And how that can be done is, you know, uh, a question. But you, 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 your, your aim should be first and foremost right now to support the struggles of working class people, especially during an economic crisis when so many will be unemployed. 
Um, because of the, and this goes back to sort of a, a, a very traditional kind of orthodox Marxist stance um, that Rosa Luxemburg, for instance, would embrace. Uh, or, or someone like Heinrich Grossman, who was a, more of an EE, I think I agree with him on his economic analysis more. Um, but he was also uh, in the same kind of Bolshevik tradition as, as Rosa Luxemburg. Um, uh, and that would be to say, look, the, you can't, it, the workers have to emancipate themselves and they will do that by organizing together in moments of economic crisis when mm -hmm. their interests and the interests of the capitalist order are, are clearly at odds. So, okay. you know, and, and so at the moment we're going to be, as profitability goes down, as the ability to create a social surplus that can actually meet everyone's needs declines, as many people are forced into starvation wages or actual starvation. And when you say then, profitability goes down, you mean for the working class because clearly No, I mean for the capitalist work. class. Right, yeah, not yeah. For, there's a, not there's for the a book class. called Iron Heel. Uh, it was written around the time of the Civil War. And, you know, they talk about that too. When, when you have such a divide between rich and poor, uh, the sad truth for industrialists, let, you know, the industrialists can't, in all, even if they have all their wealth, support a whole economy. Let's say you're wealthy. What are you going to do? Buy all the coffees, a thousand coffees? To support no, right. Some. Let's say you're a leader of several, right? You're only going to buy, you know, so many coffees. So if the wealth is aggregated uh, or under your control, you, you can't, you'll still see a slowdown in the economy. Right. Well, there's something uh, called the tendency for the rate of profit to decline that Marx talks about in Capital, I think, volume three, and in somewhat in volume one. And what happens is as we get more efficient in producing commodities, the amount of value, because it's based on labor time, declines. Um, so slowly the rate of profit declines, which means, uh, which leads to all sorts of economic problems. So if, when companies aren't profitable, they go out of business. When they okay, go out okay. of business, they're, 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 there's unemployment. Um, okay, when there's so unemployment, we're getting to the specifics of yeah. what should be done by the working class. Yeah, the working class needs to prepare for the fact that we're that the COVID crisis right now has done enough of a shock to the economic system that there isn't going to. I don't think there's going to be. I mean, at least prepare for the possibility and that there's not going to be an easy recovery, and that their interests are going to be the first ones that are ignored uh, as capital tries to right itself and get profitable again, um, and that you know. You know, there the the destruction of capital includes the destruction of workers. Like when okay, we're going to yeah, we're going to get back to the specifics because I have a question. You said something, and I want to mm -hmm. talk about that before we before it goes away. You said that the supporting supporting the working class people is a project of the left. Now the right would also say, actually, we're the ones that are supporting the working class. We care about those who are farmers and agriculturalists. Is that what you would define as the difference between left and right, is those who want to support the working class? Or is that what you would define as, as the Marxist project, as supporting the working class? In other words, what's the definition of the left and the right, and perhaps even Marxism, if you have enough time? Uh, okay, so the right wing attempts to support the working class are almost always um, uh, nationalist, and they're almost always defined in terms of correcting uh, or getting the capitalist class back on its feet so it can then uh, employ more workers. Uh, you know, so for instance, the, the, the questions about immigration, it's like, you know, the right wing um, 
approach to understanding the, the calamitous impacts of the economic crisis after 2008 on working people is to point to uh, the problems that arise from immigration and say, if we fix those problems, we close that border, um, then you're gonna, the system will right itself and uh, you'll have, well, job security and you'll have better wages and you'll have that lifestyle from the 50s that if you're white you might even remember um, or you know think that you shared in um, whereas the left would say look look a little deeper and say look first of all um, the reason why there's so much rush for uh, people for people to come into this country is because of the uneven development between the nations that the capitalist capitalism is not um, at all immune from crises and it isn't uh, working in a simple linear progression towards a better and better world. It, it goes into crises, it, it, it creates inequalities, not just between people, but between nations. And you're when never you going crises, to- Sorry, just to interject, when you say crises, do you mean depression or do you mean- Yeah, sure, recession and depression would be a big part of what I'm oh, talking about. So the major, about. the major, when you're referring to crisis, you're referring to recession and depression. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I am. I'm okay. referring to the inability of capital to reproduce itself, the going out of business, creating massive unemployment, um, not providing the material needs uh, in a rational way to people. Um, so, so you can, the weird thing about it is like you can sit on massive amounts of wealth that because you've been so efficient at production and still have an economic crisis that makes people starve because mm -hmm. of the, the irrationality of the capitalist system. Okay, so the, the definition of the left is? And the, the definition, the definition of, left. of left would be wanting to those who want to expand the power and understanding of working class people, not just in one country, but around the world, because that is, because they're tasked with changing the foundation of their own work and their own activity, which after all is the foundation of the society. The, the, the big realization for the left is that the people who are really responsible for the failures of the left are the workers. Because without the workers, none of this would be able to happen. This is the, the people, the figureheads in power, the capitalist class, they're a problem. But the main problem is taking up the responsibility of transformation and of working in your own interests. And uh, so the left's goal is to empower workers to uh, organize themselves to take the power to fight for their own interest. And that will mean transforming society. But the one big flaw is that uh, in, the, in the leftist discourse around that is that uh, understanding what socialism would be after such a rupture, what the, what the actual relations of a new socialist economy would be like is right. something that is most Marxists are very- Slavoj's problem, uh, right? That he talks yeah, about, right? Yeah. What do you do the day after? I think he says in his, in, in his perfect fashion in that way, I would sell my own mother into slavery right? if <laughs> right. someone could tell me what happens after V for Vendetta. <laughs> like, it's a right. wonderful uh, question. Well, and, and that's and I, I think I've what you're trying to ask. What, yeah. what, what would happen? Like, what, in your conception, what is the Marxist picture? Uh, and if so, what is, if, if you can't tell me what that would look like, what I can is tell the you, vehicle? I can tell you a, a bit about it, but uh, but the, I want to say something about Slovoj since you brought him up. I've interviewed him, and uh, by the way, I don't think that in reality he should be, I mean, he'll call himself a Marxist from time to time, but really he's a Hegelian, right? He's a left-wing Hegelian of some kind. And um, and w what Slovoj is best at is taking that kind of Hegelian, 
approach to understanding society and uh, poking holes in conventional wisdom on the left. Um, and, and also he's, a, I think, a deep uh, philosopher of Hegel. Um, but so, and he also the, praises Christianity too, right? That's kind of right. harmonic yeah. with other Marxists. Yeah, but I mean, you know, not in any profound way, because he 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 points to things that ideas in Christianity that you know uh, can be understood through Hegelian perspective, and that then you can also see informing Marx. So, uh, like the way the dialectical thinking, you know, the way that you have to consider things not for in a fragmented way, but in their totality. Like the, that sounds how, pretty Christian. How, yeah, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, see so like you know, everything as as a oneness as opposed to separate, right? But not like, a, but not like a oneness that's monolithic and uniform, and but like a a, a totality that's riven with with problems. Like it's self conflict, self divided kind of totality, right? So <laughs> that's well, that's like, where that's where you probably want to you know where that's why okay. maybe Hegel was a heretic. Just a second here. So Peter Peter is this voice of a historian, and then you're the voice of uh, science fiction writer who's well-read, excuse the pun, in Marxism. Yeah. And I'll be the Amateur voice of the, historian, yeah. And I'll anyway. be the voice of, a, of the quotidian. What is the definition of Marxism, in your definition, in your estimation? Well, um, Marxism is a political movement that, you know, started in uh, the 19th century and uh, which was a way to struggle for socialism and which has gone through many, many different iterations and changes. Um, and that was probably finally put aside in the West, uh, you know, somewhere around the late seventies or, and certainly after 1989, that everyone became a post-Marxist thinker. But there, so that's Marxism. Marxism is, can be anything from actual revolutionary struggle to uh, after the World War II, sort of a, uh, an attempt to hold on to some key concepts and perfect them. Um, Marxist decaf. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Marxism Marxist after. Life, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it, their theory is pretty thick, but um, but yeah, it's Marxism without politics. Maybe is what um, slowly emerged, and then it was. And I think that's what. So what we have now. Uh, that calls itself Marxist for the most part is social democratic movements for redistribution of the wealth um, in society. Uh, so things like the Bernie Sanders campaign, the most radical parts of that might call themselves Marxist and be interested in Marx. And, you know, look, when I was supporting Bernie Sanders, which I did, I wasn't above that uh, either. Um, but Marx is different than Marxism. But Marxism keeps returning to Marx. So whenever you, you start trying to define what Marx said and like, let's go back to Marx, you're, you're acting like, definitely you're acting like a, a okay. Marx. Okay. <laughs> uh, to, to talk about the people who are listening, and I, I mentioned that before. Well, you mentioned that your audience is usually people who ears would perk up as soon as you would mention Marxism. Yeah. The people who are listening to this will likely be center, center left, center right. Yeah. And they're thinking, well, so far I haven't heard what's radical come out of Doug's mouth. Doug is saying he wants the working class people to have some more power. Even and, libertarians would agree with that, right? And that, and you didn't say this. I don't think they would ultimately, but go but, ahead. But inequality is a problem that we can both agree on, at least yeah. extreme inequality. 
then the question is, well, how to solve the inequality? What the heck is like you're saying that Marxism could be so many different definitions. Well, yeah. What do you mean when you say Marxism? Well, I what I mean when I say Marxism also, I mean, here's the thing. I'm I'm being, I think maybe a little bit like Slobo Zizek. What do I mean when I say Marxism? It depends on who I'm talking to and, and what the context is, right? But if so I don't think it's a good idea to try to nail down what Marxism is. I think the better idea is to try to nail down what uh Marx's understanding of socialism was and to uh to try to understand uh what capitalism is and and what and what kind of society we want so but you asked me so you said um radical like i haven't said anything radical yet well the most radical thing about marx was he didn't take uh our fundamental economic so hear that sound that's the sweet sound of success with shopify Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Relations that we need to survive as being outside of our control, right? What separates Marx and makes him radical from uh, most everyone else is that the terrain in which we, the, the part of the society that we just take for granted, that we produce things for exchange in the market, um, and that certain kinds of proper relationships uh, support that. He didn't take for granted. So uh, he would be aiming at cooperative work uh, done with the aim of providing for some sort of social whole, for uh, some sort of community. And that's what makes him a communist. It's like, will there be a common store of the goods uh, that we produce in the world? And what we'll compete over isn't access to the common store of goods, but for uh, power over the creative work that produces those goods. So production would be the highest want, or productive work would be what people struggled. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. 
The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. You know, there's this there's this sense. You mentioned communist, right? Like, and you look at the etymology of the term. He loved the Paris commune, right? right. There's, there's no doubt about that. Marx right. is still kind of idealized that time. Uh, there's a historian by the name of Wilmont writes a book called um, Living the Revolution. And it's about the early, early Marxists in Russia who, uh, like other Marxists throughout Europe, were living in communes, right? They were trying it out. They're like, okay, well, uh, enough talking about the experiment. Let's make it happen. Let's go in the woods, share everything, and we'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. And this is really where there's like this rooting of uh, Marxism, it gives them a space to discuss these ideas and try it out. Uh, I'm not going to say that it, it worked per se. There's, we see this commune idea happen over and over again. The only guys who I can think of, or, or, or folks who ever kind of successfully pull it off, uh, are like monks. That has, have you ever thought about that? Like, why is that when the secular thinkers, if you would, or secular youth try it? These hippie communes, these anarcho communes, you know, there's varying success. But meanwhile, the guys who are following the code of St. Benedict, who have renounced wealth, who do not see wealth as the primary engine of history, who have denounced personal property, who have taken vows of poverty, man, they're still making wine, bread, and cheese up in the mountains. Why did they succeed and these guys flunked? Well, I mean, what are they, do, what are they doing with their wine, bread, and cheese? Uh, giving it for free sometimes, like they and, just like. And it's, what it's I guess my and my and my and what's the source of their, uh, you know, wealth to be able to continue to produce that way? I mean, I mean, what, what do you are mean? they living like, strictly like are a they, specific are they, or you know, they, yeah? I mean, are they subsistence farmers or are they in some way or another cooperating within uh, the market economy that kind of has dominated the globe? There's there's a pretty wide variety of monastics traditions right so like you get everything from uh a single guy who like saint abba john the dwarf uh this uh, dwarf who goes out into the desert with a stick plants it lives in a cave waters the stick every day till it becomes a tree and next thing you know there's like a garden uh to you know uh i think my a buddy of mine is working with some nuns in india who run an a co-op that makes fabrics and sells them to the or for like a bare minimal cheap price just to continue so they could keep so they could eat and give uh, right so you know it's very it's almost like an inversion of the marxist model that works why i mean if you go down look if you go down to a small enough group it gets a lot easier right but what but on the other hand one of the wonders about capitalism is that it has managed to collectivize the world for the most part that is, it's brought everyone into a big collective project, 
of creating commodities. Most all of the world is capitalist now. And most, uh, most of the, the things that, we, that exist in the world were created by workers, as we understand that category, under capitalism. Do you mean industrialized or do you mean capitalist? Because didn't we say within the Marxist catechism that to be capitalist was you have the machines, the separation. Not everyone has those. Uh, no, and well, but well, what do you mean by brought everyone together? I'm not saying that they're, they're I'm not, not saying, the level of industrialization is different in, in different parts of the world. But for the most part, every every part of the world is industrializing. Every part of the world is influenced by capital capitalist relations. Every, you know, there's is there a country in the world that doesn't have any relationship to the foreign market that isn't in any way bringing in goods from other parts of the world or putting other parts of the world, goods out to the other parts of the world? I don't think so. Um, no, I mean, there's an island of, been doing that before capitalism, right? Like, sure, but, but not on the scale that's being done now. In the, in the past, what supported most people sure. was subsistence farming of various kinds. And what supports most people now is interaction in the, uh, in the market, uh, certainly in the industrial, in what's called the industrialized world, that's almost completely universal, but more and more that's the case for larger and larger parts of the world. And when that has happened, when that's, I'm going to be a big advocate for capitalism here. The fact that capitalism could bring like a true Menshevik. Sorry. <laughs> well, the, 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 don't say that. I'll get canceled. So, <laughs> All right, go ahead. Um, um, or that, Gulag. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's put, what happens to the Menshevik. Yeah, yeah, I'll be hey, in no, I'm Gulag. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go ahead. I'm not. I'm sincerely scared of many of my comrades. So, oh, uh, <laughs> well, that's also not unique for Marxists, right? So, but yeah, so capitalism brings all these people into, into uh, uh, collective endeavors, makes, it brings people together out of, out, of, out of their private interest into a collective interest, into a communal interest, but it does so in a particular way where it's that's mediated by the expansion of an abstract value based on the exploitation of workers. And so the goal for Marxists is to not to give up the powers of industry, not to give up the power of our collective creativity, but to unfetter it, to, to change the terms of it, to mediate those relationships in a better way. Um, so. so you think the uniting goal, like uniting value, the highest value if you will, uh, of capitalism is exploitation? Like that's, their, that's what wakes them up in the morning like man, I can't no, no, no. I don't think workers. I don't think individual capitalists are sitting around going, "Oh, how many workers can I exploit today?" But and how is that the value that unites them, or is it like the liberalism? well, because it's the actual. It's not an ideological value. It's an economic value. It's a material value. It's the, the fetishized value that so, so. So like, look, what determines a price? What determines a price ultimately is the amount of time that it took to create the commodity and and. Uh, so because of, are you there? Come on, wait, wait, this is bad Marxism, right? You said you have your value, Fro froze. Uh, they're listening. No, I'm just kidding, continue, continue. Uh, <laughs> no, no, okay, so why is this bad, but why is this? So the labor theory of value says that the amount of time that it takes to create, what makes things exchange as equal things in the market is this, this value that they share in common, this abstraction uh, or substance that the two commodities that may be completely different share in common, which is the amount of amount of time spent working to create the object. So when you go and you trade uh, a, a pile of, of bagels for uh, a book, uh, well, or better better than 
put intellectual uh, uh, work into this, which complicates it. But, you know, a pile of bagels for a, a hoe, you're saying, okay, the amount of time it took me to take these bagels and the amount of time it took you to create that hoe are roughly the same, so we're exchanging equal values. That, that logic, a, though, you could spend years on a bagel and it would be worth the world. Like, I don't know if right, that's no, it's exactly not, it's the not, Right, it's not a matter of individual time. It's a matter of socially necessary time. So uh, the market isn't, um, if, you, if you create a bagel and it takes you 10 years, the costs, the overhead costs, and the amount of time just to you, you and the amount of money it takes for you to feed yourself as you do this work will require you to price that bagel way outside the range of what's normal in the market. You're competing with other producers, which creates right. a socially yeah. necessary uh, uh, li- amount of labor time that's acceptable for the creation of a bagel. The, the fact that you're competing with other capitalists is what brings that price down. And then beyond that, you innovate to try to produce the same bagel faster. And for a little while, you can make a lot of profit because it takes you less time and money to make a bagel than it does your competition. Right, you can still charge the helpful. same. Yeah. Right, and you, you can still charge the same because the socially, the standard time, the amount of time that it takes for most people is higher. So you're, you slow, by speeding up production, you can outcompete your competition, but then eventually they can't catch up with you and that, and that lowers your prices. And that's, that's, that's how, Labor so we're walking time. through that last bit. We, we... Well, I mean, okay. Um, your competitor uh, is producing bagels faster than you are, and then taking on, uh, you know, more of the getting more of the market share. Now, either that competitor is going to monopolize, or you're going to figure out how to catch up and produce your bagels at the same rate or faster, so that you can uh, compete with and, and stay in business. Right. So that 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 pressure for individual capitalists to innovate, stay up with what's current in, in you know, the industrial realm, get the better machinery, or if they can't do that, discipline the workers to go faster is um, a big part innovate, of Innovate, right? Like innovate. I well. said either innovate yeah. or yeah, yeah. discipline. Yeah, I didn't yeah. say just one. Okay, so good, good. I'm not, and, these, none, and none of these things, by the way, are moral judgments, right? Okay. Okay, yeah. and when I talk about exploitation, I'm not saying appro- uh, uh, oppression necessarily oh, okay. it can be exploded. so exploitation in this definition could be good it can be in, in a way yeah because it uh uh well it's i wouldn't say it, it's good or bad it can it has a negative consequence unintended it a negative connotation but it certainly does have a negative connotation and that's because you know uh marx is a good leftist but um but no the the, the problem with exploitation is twofold one is that it requires that there be a work uh, uh workers who um are paid the value of what they need in a set of commodities to survive or live, which I think is probably a better way to, you know, whatever, to whatever level is acceptable standard in your society. So you get paid enough to live, but you then produce more value than the set of commodities you need to live. So you are exploited because you're producing more than what you're compensated for. But if you weren't, if you were compensated for exactly what you produced, then the company would go under and, the, and there would be no production. And so the system can't operate that way. Well, I mean, companies are, so it's kind of like what David Sloan Wilson talks about when he, when he talks about multivariate selection and evolution, right? You have different populations and within those populations, you can have slackers. Um, you can never like, but slacker populations do not do well when faced with populations that actually help each other out. Those guys outcompete them. Um, and right. just kind of, 
competition. Yeah, but, but that, that whole that whole thing is you got to divide between the use value of things and natural and actual wealth and the amount of time it takes to do things and the value that comes out of that of the capitalist process where you're setting things up to be sold in the market. So, um, like you know, what happens to slackers in a capitalist relation is they probably try uh, to just you know hide themselves for as long as possible and it's they're just one variable amongst many that slows down production and then or they all never... talk about philosophy like us you know yeah right well <laughs> yeah yeah we're working hard here so but uh uh yeah as a former slacker literally you know born into that generation of slackers or gen x um right. I, I think slackers are just part of the equation and um yeah, you for can sure you can see this in, but, and nonetheless, capitalism overcomes the problem of the slacker because right. it has, uh, you know, even when it, even if it doesn't overcome it totally, it doesn't make everyone perfectly efficient, but it has all these tools to bring to bear, to innovate production and discipline workers and really produce a lot of wealth. The, the right. difficulty is that wealth is distributed irrationally and, um, and periodically it's distributed in ways that are truly irrational where you've got things going on like people dumping milk down the drain because to keep to bring the price down oh, oh in or, or ontario we have government milk quotas which are our own problem but really, really yeah. quick um on the and i actually have to use the restroom open past the curfew okay yeah this but uh something maybe to explore is when you have freedom when you have liberty you have those who choose rightly and those who choose kind of falsely those who abuse freedom those who succeed in utilizing those from just a mass variance of you know of outcomes that you get evolutionarily when you just let freedom reign and to your point this kind of does create a split how do we rein in the split how do we reconcile the prodigal sons with the ones who did the right thing and something maybe to talk about i'll, I'll be right back okay sure okay yeah okay so say it to me <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, well, my view, my view in this is that um, the level of competition um, that we ex expect probably wouldn't, that, that we're used to in society now, and the kind of rewards and punishment or, and the incentives uh, that we uh, rely on now to direct people to make the right kinds of decisions that are socially useful, like, you know, when you work hard, you're helping more than yourself, you're helping the people around you, you're producing more, uh, you're contributing more. So we want to incentivize that. Um, but the idea with so under socialism is that the, the rewards and punishments wouldn't take place on the level of survival or subsistence, but would take place probably more on the level of like social recognition, uh, creative fulfillment. Um, and that's when you turn away from competing for access to the store of, of goods um, and instead the what people would be competing for is the ability to have some sort of elite position within the realm of production like a you know are you going to be uh, playing in the back row on your violin or are you going to be the conductor um, those are the okay. kinds of things that that would uh, would incentivize people to work hard and to think hard and to continue to innovate. Um, this is maybe where I, I'm a little bit utopian is that I think that we can uh, bring the level of conflict in our society down. So it's not a matter, it's not always a struggle or most of the time isn't a struggle for survival. Um, and that we could even see 
you know, uh, the expansion of human health and, and uh, technological development to support that under socialism. Like one of the people I interviewed because I'm a socialist was Aubrey de Grey. Do you know who he is? No. He's a longevity researcher who was working uh-huh. on medicine to repair the body's, uh, the damage the body does to itself due to aging. And um, I think that, you know, overcoming, like extending the health span uh, for as long as we can would be a, a good thing for society and for individuals in society and that um, that would be worth supporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so. one of the questions I've always wondered, uh, I, tend to, I ask Marx, I ask many people this, but Marxists in particular, what is the goal of Marxism or whatever it is you're pursuing? Is it a longer lifespan? Is it happier people? That is the metric of life satisfaction subjectively reported. Is it child mortality rates to go down, to plummet? Is it wealth to increase? Like, what is it in particular that the Marxist project expansion the, the first and biggest thing is i'm gonna is the expansion of human freedom um and and i think along with that a lot of the things you've mentioned would be uh, uh improved concomitant. Like I think, yeah concomitant to that i think that um you know you would probably see definitely see if things are working out at all well you know the even further decline in, in infant mortality um than we've already seen with the rest of modernity. You, you would definitely see an expansion of uh, the lifespan for most people. Okay, um, so to simplify, and excuse me if I keep using the word simplify and be specific, mm-hmm. I'm a mathematician, I'm a foolish mathematician, think of me as extremely ignorant when it comes to these topics and I'm just trying to understand them. You and Peter can talk at a certain level, but to me, it's, I'm, I'm always listening, almost always listening to conversations of Marxists, as if they're speaking another language, or not getting to the issues that I'm, that I that I actually care about. Like, what yeah. are you specifically advocating for when you say redistribute wealth? How are you specifically going to redistribute it? I'm going to be asking you a couple of questions like this. I'm not a redistributionist. Ultimately, I mean, I I supported Bernie Sanders, but like one of the things about Marxism you have to understand what I would want to emphasize the most is that it is not the project where the state takes up all the things we produce and distributes it rationally. That is not the aim of Marxism. That wasn't okay, even sure Lenin's aim. Okay. Huh? The, 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 goal is to, the goal is to change the way we work together to produce the things we need, to change the aim of our collective work so that the mm-hmm. aim would be actually the expansion of human power and creativity rather than simply, rather than the aim of profit making in the market. So okay, let me be Socratic here. Yeah. Okay. Why are we, why do you care so much about freedom? I know this sound sounds like it's so self-explanatory, but just let's be clear. Um, well, I, 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 care the, I care a lot about freedom because I feel as though uh, life is short at the moment. And uh, that if you, uh, and that, the way to bring meaning to life uh, for human beings is to try to explore the, the, the life that they have as much as possible and to take up uh, as much power to, to shape their own destiny as possible um, while we're here. Um, okay. I, I don't, uh, I, I, yeah, so I'm a humanist. I'm a humanist. That's why I care so much about freedom. 
Okay, so meaning in life. Now, you also mentioned that people tend, you don't like people starving, obviously, like, who right, does? Right, no, that's, that's, the, the word, that is not a free condition, right? Right. When you're starving to death, uh, you know, if you're, if you're eight months old. However, there is the rebuttal that in the capitalist societies, not the, not the communist societies, for sure, there are less people starving and that and capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty. I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure you have some yeah. rebuttal. So I'd like to hear this. Like okay, so my rebuttal would be back to kind of my original point about the Soviet Union, which is like, you know, if you're going to compare the failures of the Soviet Union to anything, you might compare it to uh, the way that capitalist and bourgeois uh, relations started in England in, in the 17th century and after. Like, you have to look at all the famines. You can't just look at the ones in, in, that were nearby. Um, I think that what we're looking at when we look at things like the Russian Revolution even and, and the Revolution in China is an attempt for these traditional societies to modernize much more than it is uh, any uh, fully worked out or successful attempt to transcend capitalism. I mean, it, it, that was their aim, but that, that, that is how they modernized and ultimately in the case of China and, and the Soviet Union, that is how they entered into the capitalist uh, world that we know today. You would describe the Soviet Union as capitalist? Yeah, state capitalist. Because the, um, look, wage so like labor... like we are now, like in, in Canada. They're the well, state. more so. Or right? in America. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Interesting. Uh, much more so than we are now. But there was, especially then, uh, uh, you know, in around the time that the Soviet Union uh, came into being, um, and, and, after, and especially after World War II, there was a tendency for the state to intervene and capitalist relations and to, to direct capitalist relations more and more across the industrialized world. So you'd see it in the Soviet Union for sure, but you also saw it in FDR's America. And the role of the state to direct capitalism hasn't gone away, it's just changed. So you've, it used to be that there was a, more of an emphasis on redistribution when there was a threat of, of unruly workers. Uh, and also when there was a boom going on and there was a lot of economic growth. And then after the 70s, when after the profit, profitability crisis of the 70s and, uh, and the, all the other economic crises of the 70s, there's been these neoliberal turns to try to prop up capitalist relations through state spending. And um, so, but yeah, I would say overall, the Soviet Union and China were state capitalist organizations with socialist ambitions. Like us, like there's. So here's my question for you, because like I mean, Chomsky. Told I don't think that I don't think that America is, is aiming at. I don't think the politicians in America are socialists. I don't think that even Bernie Sanders has, like, the same vision of transcending capitalism that someone like Lenin had, or that even Mao. Well, Lenin didn't wanted. like the state, right? So yeah, he uh, wanted it to wither away. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think we could call him state anything in that way. Um, well, but when it comes to when it, I mean, he says in, in the, right the state revolution. When I he say didn't the have state, statist I mean, ambitions, but he ended up creating state capitalism in the Soviet Union. The, what you yeah, intend I mean, to you do could, and what happened Net that way, one hundred percent. The new economic policy and yeah. the people were down for it, right? People were naming their kids Net, <laughs> like they were naming their kids. Yeah, after well, because the it was because the, the other approach was creating massive famines. I mean, that was a. a, a in a way, you know, absolutely necessary, a kind of a necessary retreat. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Here's it was a, a disaster. You. But like the Irish famine is how you should consider 
uh, you know, the, the, the way that with the, the robbing of the commons, the, the taking the peasant right, workers' yeah. land away from them, that happened as capitalism developed. And that happened as, as so-called communism developed as well. Did you notice the thread between all your examples? This is not that people call themselves socialists. It's not that people call themselves capitalists. It's the fact that the government, had, in, in the case of the Irishman too, like you look at the British government, the British imperial government was like a federal government of federal governments. Right. It was insanely regimented. Uh, you can go to the Supreme Court here in Canada, and there's a plaque inside that just says, yeah, this court is the highest court in this land, except for the one in English, right? Like we answer to that. Right. It's, it's the federal government saying, listen, buddy, just like you, we have a federal government. Uh, right. You know, all of these things have massive centralized state power. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So is it that that you really have a problem with? Because there's another position that says that the rich guys ally with the government guys, and there's a revolving door. These people, of course, who negate that revolving door by desiring decentralization in different forms, they call themselves anarchists. Like, right. Why, well, I was an anarchist. You know I, mean? like, I was well, basically an anarchist before, right? But you still are. Yeah. Well, a lot of people might say that. No, I. Um, yeah. So where's well, the, the Marxism? It's like what I'm trying the to Marxism figure out. Like, is, uh, where's the government the in this? Well, the, What's okay. their role? All right. So Marx thought that that there should be something called the dictatorship of the proletariat. Lenin talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat. The Bolsheviks thought they were going to create the dictatorship of the proletariat, but they, they never did, um, even by their own accounting, really. Um, so what is the dictatorship of the proletariat and why do um, Marxists support it and anarchists don't is maybe the way I would put it. There's a Go moment, ahead. I think, in the Stalinist regime where they're like, yeah, we, we've achieved socialism. We just have well, traitors, right? Well, and yeah. That's I why mean, we got to purge them out. Yeah, but they, but they would even then admit that, you know, the law of value still applied and that they were still going to have to balance, you know, think about profits, basically. And, and you know, they, they never implemented something like a, the what Marx talked about in the critique of the Gotha program, which would be like a labor voucher system that would uh, replace money or anything like that. None of that ever happened. <laughs> Instead of getting dollars, you'll get this bill that says that you have this much value. And if you collect enough of them, you can put them in this place that will invest them. Uh, no, 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 no. You couldn't do that with the labor vouchers. <laughs> I mean, there's so no, no, it, 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 the way it was described in the right? critique of the Gotha program, it wouldn't have been possible to hold on to and then invest in production it would only be good to redeem one hour of work. Look, it was a bull. It, it, the whole point, if you read a critique of the Gotham program, is that the labor voucher system contradicts itself, and it makes the 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 the, the value uh, in labor uh, uh, kind of obvious to the workers and no longer necessary to worry about. Right. Uh, I, when the Soviets took over, right, uh, yeah. and you had early the, the early Soviet Union, they didn't print money the early government, <laughs> because they were like, great job, GG, we don't need the money. And then they realized that they need, they need money. And, uh, right. you know, it was almost dead. It was like a stillborn, unfortunately, that idea. It, it, it died from its infancy before it had a chance for life. Maybe that, says, that might reflect something in the ideology. But um, when it comes to what we were originally talking about, what's the role of the government? Why wouldn't you just... Call yourself an anarchist. Okay, so the role of the government after a revolutionary break, uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat, it would be there to administer or administrate relations between workers, <coughs> maybe workers' councils, maybe Soviets, but the workers' process of transforming the way 
production costs. Um, what? And it would not be, it would be like a technical job. They'd be more like clerks or communications officers or something like that. And not, and they wouldn't be dictating uh, policy. They would be implementing the, the workers' the, demands. But the moment the government takes on the role of arbiter, you need policy. Like that's arguably all they do. Right? That's why Lenin in the They wouldn't state, be dictating to the workers what the workers should do to transform their relations. They would maybe set up policy about uh, how the different sectors would communicate with each other or through them, but they wouldn't be, they would be administrators, truly be administrators rather than lawmakers or seats of, of political authority. Um, that's the idea. But if you're an administrator, you administrate someone, right? Like you tell them what to do. Policy, if it, if it doesn't tell people what to do, you might as well not have the policy, right? If no one's going to listen to the policy, you're not, you're, and if you're not going to well, enforce be setting, it. It wouldn't be setting the aims of the workers. It would be advising and, and maybe setting some policies around how to implement the changes they want. It would be like if I, if I came, if I hired someone and said, I want to build uh, a backyard patio. And, uh, and I hired this guy on who knew how to do it, and he gave me technical directions. I wouldn't call him my boss. It's almost like we're building a church here. It's, it's not going to force you, but it's going to advise you what the right thing to do is. And uh, it's going to get involved with carpet. You, you even use the metaphor of a carpenter. Like, I'm just saying, <laughs> like there's a, maybe what we're think, looking yeah. at here is something that you know, we've done. Just go back to the monks. They pulled it off, by the way. They're, they're long-lasting, successful communists. Right, Why the did they that, do it? Why couldn't we? But, you know, the, the, the key thing for Marx is breaking with the, the value of labor. Breaking with this idea that what sets up our relations when we distribute our, uh, the things we make is the amount of time we spend making them. When and, you say you key, know, that's like unique to Marx? That he puts, um, he doesn't just. It, I think he does have a. I think he has a really interesting and and key and 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 unique critique of uh, the bourgeois economists that does indicate like it's a transformation of Adam Smith and Ricardo and others to to make it critical, uh, more deeply critical. I mean, uh, you know, not not to bash Adam Smith, but the yes. Um, the aim of Marx was to transform those relations and break with commodity, with commodity production. Um, because at the moment, despite the fact that the state seems to be so powerful, it itself is always managing the, the aims of, of this form of production. It's, it's like, um, the way I think of it is like capitalism is like the rules of chess. And you can change the players all you want, but those rules will remain the same until you change the game. What, what so are the rules? The rules right now is we make things aimed at exchange on the market as equivalents. The value of those commodities are based on the amount of time it takes, socially necessary time it takes to create them. You have a class of people whose only real role is to provide the labor, to produce the things that then get exchanged. You know, Whereas you could have a, a classless society where people came together to create things for a common store and competed over how and, and what they were going to do to create the, and to transform the world rather than uh, competing through the marketplace uh, and around exchange. What's going to drive that? Oh, wait, so we're all one 
team, right? Yeah, and, it would be a you know, it would be a world effort. Wouldn't it sacrifice competition though? No, it just would shift where that competition was. You missed what's, the answer. What's the what's the pressure for? Comp- I, I remember you said social status, what, the, social status, social status, uh, social status, and and power. So like. A, if, so, like, you know, are you going to be sitting in the – I said before, are you going to be sitting in the back row playing one or two notes on the violin, or are you going to be the conductor? And yeah, you can still – In, in uh, Kotkin, the historian, right, um, Soviet historian, his book Magnitogorsk, or Magnetic Mountain, he looks at that Soviet-constructed city, uh, and he, you know, remarks how in the factory in the morning, right, they would put up the productivity numbers – who, which comrade was the fastest comrade? Which comrade? Yeah, that would all be gone system. under socialism because you don't. Why? Because that's, be, the, that's the prestige. Don't you want to know? Who no, yeah, but the prestige would not be based on speeding up production in order to bring down the price of the commodity and compete more efficiently in the market, which is what all of that productivity number stuff is about. It's not about you know a point system rewarding. What are people. they competing for? Like what are what's they're competing the for? Profitability. In either in the world market or in the local market, because the faster you produce things, the more productive you are uh, on the floor, the more value you produce uh, more quickly, and the more you, and the and the and the more profits your your bosses are going to be able to fetch uh, in the market. Uh, okay, but if we're competing to be the most productive, how is that not profitability? I did. I. Didn't I could say be wrong. Be, I could be mistaken. I'm, I'm not saying anything about being the most productive. Well, you wouldn't be measuring it in quantities of work time. What are we measuring? Quality. It would be. Of work in, it would be measured in the quality of the output, and the ability to meet needs, and also to meet new needs and new oh. social ambitions. So Not in the amount of time, or how quickly it was done, or how slowly it was done. It would not be a time-based production. It would be based yeah. on the qualities. Of, so when and you talked about productivity numbers. No, you didn't. You still had the productivity numbers. You still had, look, they were looking to Taylorism to try to run their economy. They, well, Lenin they, loved Taylor. Right? right. Because he was still dictated to by the law of value and the production of this abstract value through labor time, through making sure that, you know, the amount of value in a commodity uh, you know, was socially necessary, meeting what was socially necessary, or even beating what was socially necessary. There right, was still yeah. the same engine of profitability was driving production in the Soviet Union, which is why I say it was state capitalist. So in, under socialism, that aim, that fundamental aim, would be different. That's what so makes this Socialism would be uncoercive. It would be what? Uncoercive. It would not, well, it might be coercive, but it just wouldn't be coercive that way. It would be, coer- it would be coercive, I mean, coercive like, to a different value. Yeah, to a different value. One that everyone kind of, would be aware of having set and it would be you're so arguing we would, that Sorry. we would be setting our own value our own primary value the, we would be the, setting the aims of our own production so that means that you know if we set up terms of production that have drastically terrible unintended consequences we would know that this was our primary aim that we'd set we wouldn't think of it as a natural fact of the world we'd be able to uh, alter it more easily we should definitely explore that. You're talking about assessment there, just to shift from the value, right? Like in, in, right. in terms of achieving value. Uh, yeah. The idea of assessing value is also fascinating, right? Who right. assesses the value in a Soviet state? Is it just, we vote, this is what we think is valuable, and we go for it? Do we 
Do you know what I mean? Like, who, who, who assesses what's valuable? Well, who given the agenda right now, the, the power of the state is based on the, you know, the ability to tax corporations and people and to manage the, the you know, the money value in the world, and then also to build up armies and, and to have a mandate on violence. And that gives it the ability to uh, be the final judge or assessor of the success, or at least try to be the final judge of the excess and, and accessor of social success. And, you know, we have democracy in, in place here to, uh, for the people to weigh in on how well the politicians are doing, right? So under socialism, the power of individual workers would be more direct because they would be- like Direct uh, democracy or like, what do we? Um, yeah, I think probably uh, uh, the, you know, this is where Marxists start to say, well, no blueprints. Um, <laughs> because before we can say like, what would be the best political form uh, or what would be the best way to organize our communication and, and assessment of our success, we probably should know something about the political uh, or the economic and social aims of our production. We need to know what that axiomatic first value is going to be before we can kind of know how we want to manage ourselves. But I would say that um, something along the lines of uh, local communities of control of production would be able to, you know, would also, you know, like councils or something like that, I'm just kind of reaching to what's ready at hand in, in my lexicon here, would be the people who would also be responsible for informing uh, each other about the success rate that they're having. In other words, I mean, look, it would be pretty obvious if the common store of, of goods was empty or, or in certain areas, people weren't getting what they just needed to survive. I mean, the base level success would have to be meeting just subsistence needs. You and know if that wasn't working, go ahead. I was gonna say, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, please. Yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, uh, sorry. Uh, you know, that, that idea of the common store and understanding value, I think is, is really interesting, right? Because one man might look at the common store and think, man, we did it, this is, this is valuable, we need all this stuff, it's great stuff. And someone else might look at it and look at the future and the potential in the material they're looking at and think it's garbage. Like the eyes of a prophet in the Old Testament, looking at their, the wealth in their society, all right. garbage. Um, you know, like I think, and they, and so I would say that second guy is a, he's better a minority, guy, right? But he, yeah, but he's a better communist. But he's a because, minority. So yeah, would the he, democracy favor that guy? Like this um, is another thing too. What if we just let the people organize their own common stores, and then those common stores competed with each other, and they own the equity of those common stores? And we call that capitalism. No, no, yeah, but you're like you're you're. We're not talking about a common store. We're you're still talking about access to. Commodities is the primary thing. The question would be, how do we organize? Look, let me tell you about my novel. I'm listening. This, this would clarify it, because I tried to work this out in theory, and I wrote a novel, and it ended up being dystopian, which I kind of like. Um, so this is my attempt to, to Was it supposed out. to be utopian? Okay. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was neither, really, but it was a matter of, uh, uh, everyone read it as dystopian, which I kind of perversely liked. Um, because the way I, implemented socialism was in a very coercive way. So of course it would seem uh, dystopian. I, I had an AI novel, I wrote an AI novel, where rather than, so where Donald Trump was president and 
the people in government who created the AI were convinced that he was about to destroy the world through nuclear war. And the AI was giving them reports like, here's my projected timeline before everything goes up in flames. Um, and uh, so they were trying to use the artificial intelligence to come up with a plan to save humanity from its own self-destruction, right? And, uh, and the computer programmer who was the dad of the protagonist, the guy who created the AI and was taking the information from the AI on this was the dad of the protagonist. And so the whole story is told from the teenage point of view. And what the dad of the protagonist did was thought was, we just need to perfect humanity. We just need to get everyone to be smarter. We need everyone to be faster. We need everyone to be more agile, healthier. And then um, if we raise everyone up, uh, if we can come up with a program with the power of this AI to raise everyone up in their consciousness and their abilities, we will be able to overcome this problem. And, uh, and so what he did was he took himself on as a uh, test subject. And uh, his first task was to try to beat his son at Super Smash Brothers because he always lost. Great game. Yeah. And, but it, I call it Smash. I, I, yeah, I play and I always lose to my freaking teenage Who's son. name? I'm sorry. We'll go right back to the novel. <laughs> Who do you name? Uh, well, well, yeah. you know, it's been a while. Marth was one I would play for a while, and um, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes I would take perverse choices, like I would play Pokemon, like uh, okay, Pikachu, okay, and you know, <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. No, no. I, anyway, it says a lot about. Go, please continue. <laughs> <laughs> what does it say about me? That, that oh I, my, like you know, the deep psychological psychology of what who you mean in as a <laughs> Smash Bros. Brawl or Melee rather brawls the cancer of our society. Right, that's, Melee, that's Melee is what I what I played. Yeah, so I changed please the name continue. of the game Sorry. to Bash Bash Revolution in the in the novel. So it's not Smash Brothers; it's Bash Bash Revolution, and that's the game that he wants to be able to beat his son at, and he can. The, the computer helps him. Uh, improves his game. He can beat not only his son, but he goes to a, a championship uh, for the state, and he almost beats. He almost wins. He doesn't win though, and he gets very depressed. But then he finds out from the computer that look, even if his plan had worked, all that would have done was speed up the apocalypse. It would have gotten here like three weeks earlier if everyone was smarter. Yeah. And so, so the problem is not that in individual humanity. It's not a matter of our genetic code. It's not a matter of, of us not being smart enough. There's something else going on that's causing the problem. And of course, that pro what is it? It's the form of cap it's capitalism. It's, it's the mechanism oh, of capitalism. Right? Yeah, I was expecting so, a different problem. I'm yeah, but it's capitalism, uh, ultimately. And so how do, we, <coughs> how do we save humanity? Well, the AI has a solution. We have to break from the commodity form and has a way to do it. Rather than produce things based on their ability to exchange in the market, all production will be directed by video games. The video See, games. I, I thought that the way out was commodification of video games. It's good. But it's, yeah, it's commodity it's, 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 with commodities. So we're replacing commodities with uh, commodity production with maybe, you know, with the popular basing production based on what kind of games are popular. So, like. Right. Games will be designed, they're augmented reality. The games you're playing are actually producing the things that you need for other games. And so the kinds of games that are popular would be dictated by what people want to play, but also by uh, what things are most productive to produce the things that people want to play. And the AI has it all worked out in a you know, gigantic, huge brain. But it also is like clearly manipulating humanity to do its will. Yeah, like it, once once AI takes over and puts you in a video game, you're no longer in reality. You're not really making decisions based on your own 
ideas, you're making decisions based on what the computer is giving you to play. I mean, and it's a very common psychological theme in Marxist literature, right? Like, we don't do the thinking, something, someone else does the thinking. We don't right. make the commodity exchange, the government makes the commodity exchange. Well, we don't do that. Uh, do you think that that reliance on the vanguard or the vanguard, not even as an institution, but as an abstract, don't worry, the expert told me, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, but I know it's right because I've gotten it from above. Uh, government has celestial knowledge. Uh, do you think that might be the undoing of Marxism? Like why it fails? There's this externalization of responsibility and thinking? Yeah, I, I think it's part of the reason why Marxism had such difficulty. There was two reasons why Marxism had such difficulty, and there's two, two this is broken into two, a two-sided problem in Marxism. And on the one hand, it's determinism, and the other is volunteerism. And strangely enough, volunteerism is the vanguardist position. Right, and just to, to inform to, our audience, that's the one Mr. Lenin loved. Yeah, right? right. And Rosa Luxemburg was, I mean, neither of them were only volunteerists and only determinists, but right. Rosa Lenin Luxemburg was volunteers, no coercion there. <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry. Right, right. So the, if you think that the vanguard is necessary, what you think is that a certain set of ideas are to have to be developed in order to um, direct people towards their own liberation. And if you think that that doesn't need to be done, then what you think is something like maybe what Bernstein thought, but uh, in a slightly different way. You think that the, the, that the market relations themselves or the society of capitalism itself will bring people into conflict and into revolutionary struggle to create and will also give them the ability to create a new world. Like the three tenets of like Marxism, according to Rosa Luxemburg, were first, capitalism cannot last as a temporary society because it's riven with contradictions and, it, and it, it defeats itself. Second, capitalism brings people together in, in a social collective to make massive amounts of wealth and, and um, uh, socialize people to be more interdependent and less independent. So uh, to understand their need for one another, to be more cooperative. Capitalism does that. That's the, and the third thing is capitalism brings a consciousness of this situation to the working class equips them for revolution. Capitalism I mean, does all these things. That's the determinist line. How horrible. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> just to go to the uh, volunteerism, I think it is very important to specify that so, right, when we talk about volunteerism for the Marxists, we're not talking that everyone does everything out of their own you know, free will and accord and they voluntarily give you know, because otherwise the problem would be solved. If everyone did that, we wouldn't need the state. <laughs> like, well, that's actually right? the determinist uh, line. That's well, the, what you're no, just suggesting is a determinist line. Because, like, what you're saying is voluntarily, due to their real lived experience and their needs, um, people will act in their best yeah, interest yeah. and change society. And that basically is the determinist line. Right. That's saying we Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. 
No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Don't people need don't authority. That. Because right. people don't do that, ergo, we have, when we, so I'm just saying, when we talk about right. volunteerism, it's not that. Uh, when we say volunteerism in Marxism, we mean we have people volunteer to get guns and coerce people <laughs> to redistribute, <laughs> to share. So it's a whole other kind of volunteering. Uh, you know, when you, one hears the word volunteer, you think, uh, you know, they're giving a free labor. Uh, but really, volunteerism in Marxism is more like uh, the freedom to tell other people what to do. Yeah, well, it's a, yeah, the volunteerism is you, 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 yeah, you, you, yeah, right. You're led by the best and the brightest uh, to develop your ideas and put them into action right. voluntarily rather than being determined by your circumstances. It's your These own. These people are so bright, they have guns to persuade us. Yeah, you know, right. Right now, this, look, this, the, the capitalism is a violent business too. I mean, you can't just. Oh, oh. State capital, one percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm not trying to defend. Like you know, they, 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 and it wasn't even a matter of voluntarily taking up arms. It was more like you need to have the full understanding of, um, of, of Marxist ideas in order to know what to do and how to transform society. Um, otherwise, like, like you'd be stuck in. Yeah, otherwise you'd be stuck in what's called trade union consciousness and only be keep struggling for better wages. Only keep struggling within the the logic of capitalism rather than come to understand you need to be political and, and transformed. 100%. I'm not saying capitalism is not, at least state capitalism is not coercive, right? Like we have right. um, the Pickerings men in the United States, you had a strike, don't worry, hire the Pickerings men, these guys with guns, they'll come over and break your strikes. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, it'd be a shame if your laborers had something like rights, <laughs> you know, like this. Right, is, right. Yeah. And you, so you can hire out. It was, it was horrible. Uh, and the government, yeah. when they first intervene, they are on the side of the Pickerdings men. They're like, good job, boys. Thank you for your service. Be a shame if the Union Town stopped, uh, or not the Union Town, it'd be a shame if the company town stopped. So they're, no, 100% capitalism as a history of coercion part. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I agree with you there. Yeah. So um, uh, uh, the, the only uh, thing I'd add is that. Uh, this problem of determinism and volunteerism is a problem uh, when you're thinking about any radical social change um, that de depends upon um, the masses or depends upon the, it coming from the less powerful parts of society. If you have an elitist understanding of how social change is created, that you don't have this split about determinism or volunteerism, you simply have these ideas and try to put them into action. It's very direct. Um, Whereas right now, what we're talking about is the Marxist struggle to understand how to get people who don't have 
uh, don't perceive themselves to be responsible for the world or to have the power to come to an understanding of their own position and their own responsibility for transforming society. You know, there's um, some powerful words that you said there. Uh, this idea that in that volunteerist model, uh, there's a disincentivization for those on the fringes to participate. Because because you externalize responsibility, uh, when you're asked, hey, is it your job to perpetuate the revolution? Is it your job to give? They say, no, some apparatchik uh, is doing that for me. Right, we go to Zizek with the, the Buddhist in the wheel, right? Like someone else is taking care of it. I'm good here. Um, and that occurs. Maybe one of the greatest, uh, I'm not, I don't want to even say successes, but one of the greatest instruments capitalism has used to succeed is its ability to take everyone, anyone on the fringes of society to an extent, uh, to get them to participate in the game, right? If you, if you talk to Americans, they either see themselves, I think as Steinberg said, as millionaires or soon to be millionaires. And that's why so and that's why socialism is set one more. Well uh, not because I mean, it was flawed, but because even the lowest guy is playing the game. I you know, I'm not sure I quite understand the turn to talk about people on the fringes so much here, but um, because of the concern when we're talking about volunteerism and determinism was not about having a few people not agree, but not having an, uh, the working class as a big totality come together with a political project beyond the logic of capitalism. So it was, uh, okay, so, the, but I'm gonna put that aside for a second. The second thing you said there um, was uh, about uh, how capitalism forces people to cooperate in, in its own logic, right? Or, well, or it, it, sends up, it at least gets them to, right? People play the game. Uh, yeah, and that's arguably too right. Okay, oh, I, I, I remember what, what it was I wanted to address. You said um, people in the United States think of themselves as millionaires in waiting or millionaires, um, or, or haves and have nots, or student to haves, or something like that. Like, there yeah, was this was said by a Republican, Steinbeck yeah. said the, the other point. Yeah, well, I would say is that in the after World War II, for a while, that kind of uh, assessment of let's say working class mentality was accurate enough or had some truth to it um, because there was such a big boom going on and the expansion of wealth through very, very productive capitalism uh, really did change people's living standards and conditions for the most part. There were people who were excluded and those people, uh, you know, usually along ethnic lines and, and that has been a deep problem for America. But, uh, but I would say that even since the 70s, this, this notion that everyone is going to be, a, uh, could be a millionaire or that, that the working class are just millionaires and waiting, I think that's given way. And I worked in, you know, uh, as a, just a, in regular jobs for most of my adult life, like 20 years. And uh, the people who had come from families, because I come from a professionalized uh, family, um, like my father was a doctor. So, but people who came from families that were just workers themselves, they had no ambitions to be millionaires. They had ambitions to have like some security in their job. I mean, it was a scaled down version, right? Like right, they themselves right. would be business owners and then they would tell people, they could tell people what to do. I mean, that's what in the Marxist conception means to be an owner. I knew someone right? at Comcast uh, who was very, very much from the working class. She would talk to me about uh, her life and like, all the bitches she'd beaten up at bars the night before because they were eyeing her boyfriend and stuff like that. <laughs> she was tough. And, um, uh, uh, you know, but she had aspirations. 
she wanted to be a mortician because she saw that as a job with some security behind it. This was not somebody who was looking to, uh, I mean, she, she, was, she wanted to have a great life for herself, but she didn't look to her work or to her future income as the way she was gonna satisfy herself in the world. It was just what she needed to get by. I don't think that material, here's actually maybe where we differ mm -hmm. um, Marxists, right? I, I don't think material is the satisfaction of life. Like, I don't think that's where the meaning comes from. Uh, right. And this is something that you know, Marxist historians have uh, trouble with, especially when they're retroprojecting on history. Like, how, how would a Marxist explain, let's say, Tertullian or the Christian martyrdom? These guys who give up, not, not, let alone their material, their lives. Uh, how, you know, like, how, where does that fit in in the Marxist history? It's almost like it's this, a deviation away from the, what they consider the engine of history material. Well, I, I don't think the Marxist idea is that everyone's working only for their own strictly material interests. It's more that the way that you can, you build social relationships to meet everyone's or as many people as possible's uh, material interests is what's going to determine the framework in which these other subjective attitudes arise. So, you know, if you want to understand the church, you have to understand um, the feudal society in which it arose. That doesn't mean that uh, everyone was just dictated by uh, love of corn. Like pre-feudal society. Uh, right, 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 yeah. right. Well, Christianity arose and took power and became a real force, didn't it, in, in the Middle Ages when, and before? Isn't that when, I mean, yeah, it dates further back, but didn't, I guess, you know, it depends upon what kind of Christianity you're talking about. Because it was well, still, you know, like it doesn't matter. Don't say ask you what as he wrote with the Grand Inquisitor. If Christ came back, he saw the church. Lord <laughs> knows what he'd think. So uh, you know, I think it's the Grand Inquisitor says something in like oh, get out you know, he's torturing people in the Spanish Inquisition. But my understanding well, is get that out of here, we're not ready for you yet. <laughs> right? so, the church had some role to play and Christianity played some role in the in the formation of it was part of the political power that shaped relations under feudal in the feudal world. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, even Marxists, right? Like there was, uh, if you look at the list in the Soviet Union for the guys who were on board with Marxism, they're all Papa Dichis. Papa this, Papa that. Well, the Papa preface, Papa Andrea Dich, the Papa meant like son of the priest. So it's like, like Papas is the priest, right? So uh, they were all from this like priestly, if you would cast or class, like, so oh. it's it's really interesting how the role Christianity plays in history. It's, it's rather, right. it's dodgy. What Marx would want to emphasize, or Marxists would want to emphasize, is how Christianity related to uh, the relationships between pasts that had some role to play in the way material needs were met in a society, and what kinds of things were built, and, and you know, what, what set up those needs, rather than only on the level of like theological debates or only on the level of the cast of characters who took uh, authority in the church or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, um, who is he? Uh, the great Greek uh, communist, uh, but he was also a prolific writer, he's like Derek Dostoevsky and Sartre, uh, Nikos Kazantzakis, right, who is the, the, if you would, the Marxist Christian, and he, he really emphasizes this idea that, you know, if, if you need some wealth redistribution, you need 
the word they had, they right, for um, Christianity war. This this idea the, of uh, the early charity. socialists. The early socialists were Christians. I mean, to almost Where? Well, in Europe, in, in in the 19th century Europe, like you know, uh, uh, the utopian socialists were mostly Christians, and they were um, uh, Lutherans or you know radical uh, anti. Uh, they were on the side of of the Lutheran tradition, where you wanted to bring the word of God down to the people and 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 away right, from yeah. the priestly class, um, and so Those, uh, they figured out the communism, man. I'm just saying, like, they're the, the Right, I'm, but I'm putting in quotes. What distinguished Marx from them was that he didn't, he was not utopian in so much as he didn't want to wrap out a, like write down a blueprint uh, for exactly what moral values should be at play and what relations should exist and how people should set up a stable, godly, harmonious world. But rather, in, in, oh, he on, wanted to, he wanted to free the relations uh, so they could be more and more creative and create new mean new needs and like he was much more on the side of of bourgeois humanism uh than the usual socialists were uh because he was excited about the freedom that was potentially there and the development that could come out of a socialist uh, society much more than he was about the perfect moral values or the balance or harmony of a of a oh yeah for sure marxist are not concerned with morality. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but no, there's. They are too, right? It's just a question of what it is you you value, right? And um, the way you, if you would, the, the way you would set up an institution to ensure that those values are met, I think, is where Christians and Marxists differ. Um, if you were talking about like the early church, but you know, when it comes to this idea that. Uh, you need, in order to be a, a Christian, to give all you have, to, um, you know, avoid, if you would, uh, being a rich man. I think it's like James 5, they talk about, uh, you know, the blood, or the wages that you withheld from the laborers uh, will come, like, uh, your, it's like your clothes, it, it, he's talking to the rich man, he's like, oh, we've been howl, you rich, your clothes are moth-eaten, the wages you withheld from the laborers are basically going to come and get you. Uh, they cry out, uh, and he and this is the really splitting point, though. James writes for those guys, the, for these laborers who've been exploited. Uh, the just man says he does not oppose you. Something that no Marxist, I think, would ever say. Oh, here's the proletariat man. He does not oppose you. Uh, you the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie. I think there, there's this this tendency towards, okay, how are we going to resolve this? Boys, get your Molotov cocktails, take out your books on Bukhanen, right? Like, it's not, our, you know, it's not this. Uh, well, what do you of, think the Christian thing to do would be if, if in a society, in a situation where in order for the bourgeois uh, class, in other words, in order for capitalism to right itself, you knew that you had to go through another world war, uh, and that, you know, millions would have to die either from disease or starvation or that because... You have to do that? But yeah. I don't, in I order don't for capitalism, Christian. in order for capitalism, that relationship between the owning class and the working class to maintain its, its, uh, itself and to, to go forward, in order for there to be a new boom, you knew that there would have to be a massive amount of human sacrifice. 
basically. Oh, human sacrifice, I think, early but, Christians but you, are all but about. Common, right? like it, martyrdom? But, like, but no, they're, no, going, but, they're going uh, the nine yards. But I thought that Christ was uh, the what he he made it so we, there would never need to be an actual human sacrifice again. That he that the blood of Christ was replacing the need for, uh, you know, for us to take, pay penance for our own sins in this world. That yeah, so that, there's that this medieval was, model. There's a, you're talking about that idea that he's been the ransom for our sins, right? Right. This basically, medieval. this is a, a religion of forgiveness and of of one another in a community rather than a, a, a primarily a uh, like a, a religion of appeasement of a, a wrathful God. Two things. One, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle the second thing you mentioned. It's because yeah. it's a religion of forgiveness, there's no need for that world war you were talking about. The, the first one is when it comes to the idea of, you know, his sins were, how do I say this? His death was a ransom for our sins. Uh, it's interesting. That verse, if you follow it out, um, and it's Paul who starts. I, I, let's, let's, I'm going to cut you off on the ransom because that's a distraction, the, the history of Christianity. Oh, okay. and that. I want to address what you just said first, though. About... I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> snap. Ka oh, Ka you Ka got Ka me. Uh, Paul puts away Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, the idea that a Christian would say, oh, because we believe in forgiveness, there's no need for um, uh, uh, the, that human sacrifice that I was talking about. But what I was saying was, the Marxist says, well, you as an individual Christian may forgive and be just in your heart, but the problem is that these relations that we that really determine what happened right. are not just yours alone, but they're but they're objectified out in the world and they're 100%, also yeah. right. Christians so, would say that too. Jews, the word Shema. So like hold on, hold the, on, let me oh, get sorry, to the go end ahead, of that. I'll write so, it down. <laughs> so um, the uh, so the point is that. If, if we know that capitalism is going into crisis, that there's going to be a, a massive shortfall in profitability, there's going to be massive unemployment, there's going to be uh, inequalities between nations and competition between nations to try to figure out which nations are going to suffer the most, and that that competition is likely to erupt into uh, violence or, and war, uh, or at least has that potential, and that not only that, but through that process, cap enough capital will be destroyed and devalued so that new investors can come along and invest in the what comes at the end of it and find a, a new boom. Would we be willing to say as good Christians, that yes, as long them. as that, that, no, not just that we forgive them, but yes, that relation between the worker and the uh, a boss, that relationship between the bourgeois class and the, and the proletariat can continue uh, and we forgive that, not just one side, but both sides of that relation for their sins of continuing on, you know, in this pattern. Because yeah, okay, the, the, let's the, do this. So they, <laughs> there's this idea, I love this. Uh, it's been a pleasure, by the way, just speaking with you. I don't know how many hours are yeah, um, I should go pretty soon here. It's been two, I think. But, but you know, on the subject of one, I just want to say, uh, Basically, what we're talking about here is we're comparing Marxism to Christianity, and in particularly like something like Christian anarchism. Uh, I'm not going to say that Christians are homogenous. Um, obviously, you know, I have maybe maybe we all have our own interpretations of what the gospel means or what Christ meant. And, you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> um, right. Who's responsible for determining that? And heresy is we could talk about for hours on that. Um, 
ironically, something Marxists struggle with too. What's heretical Marxist doctrine? What's okay Marxist doctrine? <laughs> right. It's common in all ideologies. What, what, how do you define false teachings? Um, but anyway, if to give a sealed mandate um, and answer your question, for Marx, I, I would say for, for Christians, there's this understanding that systems collapse in their inequities even if everyone believes that it's a good system. I'll give, I'll give an example. Like, if it, you know, the, the crazy thing about the nature of sin, where you miss the mark from what should be and what is, that's it's an archer's term. Right. Um, you know, is that when, when you miss the way, uh, it's not, you might not even realize you're sinning. Uh, the, the society might not even realize they're sinning. In fact, in, in the Christian sort of cosmology, they don't, right? They, they idolize things they shouldn't care about. Uh, but the beauty of this of, of sin is that it, if there is any beauty in it, is that it goes away. Uh, it collapses by its own iniquity. It, it, it falls not because you and I want it to, but because there's something inherently wrong with that system. I give, I give an example. Let's say we lived in a society that believed that you should eat I don't know, this poison that lowered our health. We call it capitalism, <laughs> and uh, you know, and ruined our lives. But we all believed it would work. Well, you know, regardless of the fact we all believe that it's the right system, and regardless of the fact that we believe it's the most efficient, it isn't. And that it's inequities, it's very inequities, would choke itself out. Um, what if, and, but the, the difference is what you're talking Marxist, about. Well, right? hold on. Like, yeah, now, yeah. But no, the difference is that um, what I'm saying is that at the end of that process of it, of, the, of it collapsing, it would also be able to reconstitute itself and come up in the sure. same relation and do it all over again. But whereas, you know, so wouldn't the, the Christian thing to be, do to be, would be this, to change the set of relations so that they were less likely to collapse and there would be less calamity. A hundred percent. I think you right. and I would just probably disagree about the way you change it. Well, well that, uh, and that's where all that technical conversation about value and the market and the exchanges and all of that was important because if you don't believe the foundational kind of material, economic, political analysis of Marx, then you can be perfectly moral uh, of tr trying to, in a conservative way, prop up this system as the best of all possible worlds. No, uh, I, I don't think, I don't think Christ is okay with money lenders, right? Okay, so you want like, to get rid of, I mean, look. I'm just saying, like, I, I would, yeah, I'm not you want to live in a society equals capitalism. Right, right, right. I, I'm not saying Christianity, genius. I don't say Christianity equals capitalism either. My point is okay. to say, if I'm just saying to anyone, if you don't believe that the Marxist critique of political economy is true, then you ought not to be a Marxist and you ought not to uh, struggle to overcome capitalism. But that, uh, you know, there are other the, reasons why you could struggle to overcome capitalism. I, I, if, if I like, okay, for instance, okay, I'm, let's hear it. Let's, let's hear one. Okay, so the thing is, is what will be its undoing, right? So in what you tell me why I should try to overthrow capitalism. You just said there are other reasons to do it. I just want to hear what you yeah, have to say. Yeah, like, and how you and should who, tell me. Let's, I didn't. Now say I'm going to sit over here. You're the Marxist. I'm the or you're the socialist. You convince me. Why should I overthrow capitalism? I'm not saying you should. And so here's, if I may, okay. uh, offer another kind of solution. I'm just trying to describe something. Uh, more akin to the, maybe the monasticism of early Christianity uh, that comes around like 300s, right? There's a sense that the world is fallen and that the way that you, they, they, they have no utopian ideals about people, right? Like 
uh, Christianity 101 is everyone you meet is a horrible, like, sinner. They've, you know, they yeah. would kill a good man and crucify him and torture him. Right, yeah. There's yeah. no optimism in, in, like, you. And then worse, you chant every Sunday, Mia Maxwell, Mia Maxwell, or, you know, of the greatest sinners of whom I am, or of the sinners of whom I am chief. Yeah. Like, there's this understanding you are one of them. Um, they're under, the, the sort of Christian anarchistic response, which is one of the quotes is, you change yourself first, uh, and you lead by example, because, and you're not the only one in this game. Uh, there's, if you would, I'm not That's, saying a but, man okay, with a beard I, and white, that, well, wait, hear me out, hear me out. That, no, no, hear me out. No, 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 I gotta, I gotta interject, because that, right. that might be um, a perfectly good tactic. I mean, that what you're, you're talking about is what kind of tactic do we deploy to create social change? Lead by example. Change yourself first, lead by example. That's, that's not, not it. Though, non, right? There's another that's second necessary component. Okay, no, so, and what's, what's sort of non-Marxist is the recognition that you're not the only player in the game. That there's, there's I don't see one. how that's non-Marxist because the Marxists are always I'm looking for totality. I know, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, but like, I'm kind of running it because what seems to be happening up to now is like, I'll pose you a question uh, in response to the question at the end of my explanation, you don't address it and you tell me this long story about your, your I'll be curt. That are I'll not be curt. related. I promise. I, I don't, okay, okay. okay. Let's, let's, uh, let's hear them. And then I'll be curt in my responses if you'd like. Uh, like I'm talking three sentence responses. Okay, go. Just, just for you, Doug. Uh, right. Systems of power are predicated not just by the people who are within them. The inequities right. of this system bring them down, and instead a larger, let's say, reconfiguration occurs around truth, which Christians call the Lord. Okay, third sentence. I'm trying real hard. Uh, <laughs> okay, then repeat that second. Repeat that second sentence for me. My, <laughs> um, there's, there's a sense that these systems will collapse in their own inequities and reconfigure around a larger logos around the way, right? Which transcends okay, individual okay. actors. We, okay, right, right. Yeah, it's not money or power uh, that determines what is good or determines the, if you would, social relations of what is, something even higher than that. And that's where I think we differ from Marxism. Sure, absolutely, keep going. Yeah. The third I, sentence. I, I had my third sentence. I thought I was done. I'm sorry, I'm kidding. Um, you get one more, Peter. So, Oh my. <laughs> okay, good. Um, someone write this down. No, I'm kidding. kidding. You can take two. T take two or three sentences, but what's the next piece to this puzzle here? Because I'm getting, I'm getting you now. Yeah, so the idea is that you purify yourself first and lead by example and carve out a place, uh, a paradise, a garden, which what paradise means, you know, apart from the world that's collapsing, so that when the world collapses, and this is the ancient trick of monasticism, when the world collapses, they will gravitate around the garden you've created in the desert, like St. John who waters the stick till it becomes a tree and a garden. Um, that's the goal. And you don't, you do that not by Molotov cocktails, bloody revolution, World War II, or World War II, right, right, right. You yeah. do that and it will happen. Like it's, 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 here, there are similarities with Marx who also believe it was an organic process in history. I like that a lot. Um, okay, 
so now I, now I'm hearing you. I'm hearing. But you I don't need the volunteerism, if you know what I mean, with the guns. Well, you do. You have volunteerism when you're own. You have your own volunteerism. It's not. It's not a volunteerism. Is not a matter of gun. That was uh, it, volunteerism. Is a matter. No, no. The vanguard is not all about the gun. It's about the ideas. The vanguard what? party. Look, the in Marxism. Look, look I'm going to put. The, let's put that aside. I'll come back to it. I want to. Go ahead. I'm listening. I'm, I'm right? done. All right. All right. So. so so first of all, um, the idea that you, what you pointed out was that, let's just map this onto capitalism. You're saying capitalism as a world system will fall into, uh, will collapse due to its own inequities, due to its own contradictions is how a Marxist would put it. I didn't say capitalism, but any sinful I know, I'm, I'm transforming this into capitalism. You're saying any system. Okay. The, the, the transformation of Christianity into politics, that man, that's Marxist as a guess. Right. right, right. Well, yeah. the point, okay, let's say we, feudal society will collapse due to its own internal contradictions and it collapsed into capitalism, right? Uh, yeah. Roughly, totally. or bourgeois society or modern, uh, modern society. Modern society will collapse due to its own contradictions and it will become something else. This is, a dial, this is dialectical, like Hegelian thinking. Uh, and um, our Total task... Loads. Yeah, uh, our task within this dialectical of, of history is to understand and lead by example and to be there with uh, uh, the new world ready once the, uh, the, since the old world collapsed. You do right? what happens at the end of V for Vendetta before V for Vendetta's revolution, right? Right, okay. You so, give but, your money away and help the poor before the revolution comes and takes your money and gives it to the poor. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, um, but yeah, th that's, that's the ultimate volunteeristic version of revolution. People will be led by the ideas and their understanding to do what's right. That's not all, that's not immediately in their self-interest with the understanding of a better tomorrow. That's sure. what you're putting forward. Yeah. I mean, okay. not what myself is putting forward. Like I'm just a guy. But in that, no, in the, in this, this Christian, this Christian view, that's a strain of the tradition. So, right, the strain of tradition that see, sees human existence as a pro progressive uh, uh, process of history rather than Not simply... necessarily progress of history, though, because that idea comes about in the French Revolution with Kerbal. All right, uh, well, then, 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 then what you're going to... Then we have to reject this idea that after a collapse, a new and better version, a more equitable version of life on Earth will exist. Okay, you're not... You're yeah, not it, really promising that. You're promising pie in the sky when you die. You're not promising. No, uh, not necessarily. Right? I mean, like there's this understanding that you, your, that the, if you would, the kingdom of God is within you, and that you yourself won't be corrupted, and that's pretty good, and that's something you can live here, right? Right. So, like, just because everyone's exploiting around you doesn't mean you should exploit. You can right. live. Uh, I think it was. It might have been Athanasius was uh, asked. You know, Abba, what will it be like in the kingdom of heaven? He said, why do I, why do I concern myself with that kingdom when I'm living in the kingdom of heaven now, right? Like, what do I concern myself with? Uh, what happens when I die when I'm living in the kingdom of heaven? I, I see this as like a beautiful soul syndrome, the way you're describing it now. It's where, okay, sure, I allow all the people around me to suffer. I do nothing to change the, the social relations around me. What do you mean? I, do I, I, you but I, I don't I don't contribute I don't contribute to them, and I even allow myself to perish in the face of them. But I don't 
struggle to bring people together to change those relations. I accept the world as given. And no, I, not I accept. Allow my... Christians accepting the world as given. Have you read the, the gospel? Well, wait. Like, I thought, the the you, world I, as it do, is. It's like, do they want to change the world? Do they want to yeah, change this 100%, world? 100%, yeah. Okay. For the better? Ideally. <laughs> Would that not be a form of progress? They don't know if you'll ever complete the mission. Which no, is, neither so, does socialists. Really... Neither does socialists, right? Okay. Like, well, this okay. is something that's debated, though. But in in um, you know, there's if you're interested, if you're actually yeah. asking. Well, yeah. Well, I, I well, what I'm, I'm what I'm what I'm interested in in pointing out here is that uh, I can tell you that, right, right. I mean, I'm not. We may not be in such drastic different disagreement in terms of like. If we believe that we can come together and change social relations for the better, but not be perfect. Um, and not through a violent revolution or any violence. That's where we disagree. Do you, do you, <laughs> so you would never, so I, I'm not an absolute pacifist. I was for a long time, but I'm not really? an absolute pacifist. Yeah. Absolutely. Is that in the anarchist days? Yeah. Back in you're my an anarcho-pacifist. <laughs> you're like, I'm skipping the jump from, you just yeah. go to church and then you're a Christian anarchist. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I was, a, I was a, but now I think, look, there's such a thing as violence and self-defense. I so I don't, right. that that's justifiable. Um, and that I, I would say that when uh, millions of people are uh, being led to, you know, let's say the gas chambers or pushed out into the desert to starve or unemployed in such numbers that Can they can't live. Can we talk about the gas chambers one? Yeah. Okay, so there's this crazy story uh, between these guys. I don't know if you know them, and they're hardly, in a way, at least according to most Christians, Christian uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. But they're an interesting case study. I think we we all agree about that, right? They're wonderful, um, at least as a historical phenomena. Uh, you know, there's this really funny scene between the Nazis and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, the Nazis, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses were like by the Weimar. They're not like by the liberals. They don't vote. They don't believe in it. So, you know, they're, they're not very popular. Anyway, so Jehovah's Witnesses write the Nazis, if you would, like a little text message. I know I'm retro-projecting, but a little text message that's like, hey, Mr. Hitler, we don't like Judaism either. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> Hitler's like, lol, cool, uh, swear your allegiance to me in the state. Uh, they're like, sorry, we think the state is uh, of this world. We answer to a king higher than all kings our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And they, yeah, right. they respond back. And Hitler's like, lol, JK. And then he sends a message to me, so Lee, I like, lol, kill these people. And so right, right. The, ch the chase begins. Uh, you know, they, they needle them down. The Jehovah's Witnesses refuse military service. They're pacifists, God bless them. And they refuse to do the Nazi salute. God bless them, because uh, in Hitler's Germany. And all these taboos finally break it for the Jehovah's Witnesses. Next thing you know, you've got, just like uh, the Jews, right? You have guys, Gestapo, coming after these guys, putting them in the camps. You know what's crazy? These Jehovah's Witnesses, they go to Buchenwald. They're pacifists. One, the Nazis can't get them all because, believe it or not, tyranny is not that efficient. And these pamphlets spreading, uh, you know, uh, freedom fighters in a way, they go to uh, Buchenwald, the ones they do capture. They capture about a fourth of them. There's only 20,000. They capture about or something like that. It's like about a fourth one. Actually, make it in Buchenwald. And when they get to Buchenwald, they don't leave. The Einsatzgruppen use them as barbers, I think, like because they, they, they don't believe in killing, so they'll, you know, give them shades. Uh, if you open the door and you said, you know, they really believe in Romans 13, you respect worldly authority, 
because it's not up to you to destroy it. Vengeance is Paul's interpretation of vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It's not up to you. God will destroy ungodly kingdoms. Uh, these ungodly kingdoms will be destroyed by their own inequity. So the best thing you can do is just not have yourself be destroyed and be good to everyone, friends, sinners, everyone. Uh, okay. So they, they write that uh, the concentration camp guards find the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is my favorite part. They see them with uh, purple triangles. And they're like, man, these are like, talk about Antifa. These guys are the fascists. And they're like, man, what are you doing? You're, you've got, you're a German. We're Nazis. This is your moment. Like, what are you, why, why are why can't, all you have to do is go with the flow. Why are you here? And the Jehovah's say, oh, well, we think the government and the state is capable of creating evils and violence, and we're just trying to be good and try not kill anyone or harm anyone. And of course, that's a problem for governments. Uh, but these tyrannical governments will be struck down. And that's, by the way, arguing that the state's capable of great violence, easy argument to win in a concentration camp. Right. And the guards, a lot of them convert. The Jehovah's Witnesses make a printing press for the watchtower of their pamphlet system in underground in Buchenwald. And not only convert a number of the guards and the Jews, but lo and behold, the Nazis are struck down. There's always a bigger fish. Corruption eats itself. Violence eats itself. They are free, and those who are died, the blood of those who died, become the seeds for a new and expanding church in the post-Nazi regime. They won by their own standards. So, and I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, but right, man, right. isn't that a case study? uh sure i mean i i i look i'm not i'm not going to knock uh jehovah's witnesses especially not in the historical context but i um if OG what it sounds like, I'm just kidding i'm just kidding okay. uh, uh i i um i had friends i used to have jehovah's witnesses come to my house um yeah like every week or so because I was one of those people who would say, oh, hi, come on in. Let's sit down, have a cup of coffee. Let's talk You're about having it. Your, your coffee. They're like, oh, we think the world's going to end tomorrow. Spits out. We ought to tell the neighbors. <laughs> no, 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 no. They never said that. But they would talk theology with me. Um, they And, um, yeah, and then for years. So, like, I have no trouble with religious um, people. And I think some of them are quite moral and, and interesting. Um I, the the question for me is as someone who wants to intervene in the world uh, rather than simply abstain um, from uh, cooperating in what I see to be evil is, you know, what are my obligations um, in this moment? And, and you know, I, I see a world in which uh, we're headed into a massive recession, possible depression, where you are going to see many, many people unemployed uh, here and around the world. Um, it's the contradiction between the need to reinvest in capital production and the need to pay workers enough to survive is going to intensify and intensify. The state's ability, uh, uh, attempts to, inter to try to correct that will weaken the state, which in inter you know, between states will be more pressure. So I see a very dismal picture objectively ahead of me. And I think, oh, but there's the possibility that the people who are most responsible for creating these conditions, that is the working class, could intervene and say, we have a different, better sort of mode of production, a better way to relate to each other that would force, that would put all this off. We would, would actually, 
this will no longer be necessary. The and they do it by example, right? Because the, the before you remove yes, the actually, they, they would have to they would have to do it by example, or else it wouldn't work. In other words, there would have to be a new way of working together. We couldn't simply they could not simply, um, you know, take political power right. to change it. That's not going to do the trick on its and, own. And worse, it might corrupt them. Well, yeah, but like, I, I mean, right. Hashtag Marxism in the Soviet Union. Right, right. right. I mean, we don't have to, we don't Back have to, but, but it will probably be a political conflict. It will probably run you afoul of authorities. There may be moments where you need to be to act in self-defense, but the aim is not violence. The aim is right. not literal violence. The aim is the violence of, like, uh, uh, she talked about the violence, though, like. Well, the Zizek talked about violence as the most, like how Gandhi was more violent than Hitler, where basically when you undermine the that's Zizek for you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ideas in in society when you really go when you strip away the supporting ideology, that's a more ra radical and violent move than to murder someone, which leaves all the background ideology in place. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it was Price who said. Fear not those who can destroy the body, but the spirit, right? Right. So, so yeah, I, I, but I don't know if you would call the it Marxist conversion violence. Right? No, like, right. But you might if you're, you know, look, you, you, you might if you're someone who is a, a devout Catholic and you, uh, you know, really believe in Catholicism and someone's trying to convert you to, uh, to become a Jehovah's Witness, that may seem barely violent to you. You know? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm not to me. I don't know. Like when it comes to violence, I wouldn't necessarily in. Uh, well, if you would peaceful conversion as that. And another thing, quick side note: in the Orthodox tradition, to your point, that's why you know even this idea of like forced conversion, you seek people out, is so anti-monastic. The idea behind their conversion is very much in like uh, Buddhism in a way. You run out into the wilderness. You know, you tell everyone goodbye, and then you build a garden. People say, what's that crazy guy doing? And they visit you. And then next thing you know, they're wearing monk's robes. And the world starts, the fallen world starts turning around your axis. You actually never try to say them. You try to fix yourself. And the world, and as it's crashing, can use you as a rock. I want to give you a practical example of the kinds of things I think Marxists should be investing in right now. Okay, no, you tell no, me I'm what. You, well, you tell me what you think of this from a from your perspective. I don't know if you're telling me about Christianity because you're deeply Christian or because you're just a scholar of it. So, from your perspective, whether uh, right now in America, Amazon workers uh, have been put in a position where they're not safe from the COVID-19, their, their conditions aren't good. Horrible, their conditions yeah. before, before the crisis, the pandemic, weren't good. They were they very short breaks, they were working very, very hard, the pay wasn't high enough, uh, turnover was really fast. It was not sweatshop conditions, but it was not humane conditions to work in. They're now uh, struggling for better working conditions. Sounds Meanwhile, like someone's teacher, cat is struggling for better working conditions too. Is that nah, just a cat on a diet? <laughs> Who wants to, to get fed again when, <laughs> All right. when he shouldn't be? Um, so uh, the so the the teachers they're facing a reopening of schools and many. Oh cases. man, in Ontario too, the conservative government here. Got yeah. In. 
I'm Wait, a they're, teacher. They're gonna like, force, force, force teachers back into the classroom uh, without the safest conditions for a variety of social reasons that aren't all, you know, completely, uh, you know, you know, it's not like these are bad reasons in some ways. For instance, the schools have, when both parents work, the schools are daycare. So you have, and if you don't, have, if you don't reopen the schools, people can't go back to work. They may end up being evicted or, or so severely impoverished by just the right. need by a ticket. So, but if you do open the schools and the virus spreads, and it, so it's a real contradiction, but they're being, they're forcing students, uh, teachers back into the classrooms. And, and, and even if this is the sadness, right? Some of those teachers want to go back. Isn't that tragic? Like, some of them want to, and some did, of them it don't. Would lead to a catastrophe. Right, right. Some right? of them want to, some of them don't. But nonetheless, the conditions are such that it's really uncertain as to how safe it's going to be. And many right. students and, yeah. and many teachers are wanting to uh, come together to organize for their own interest and try to, to change their situation. Right. They're going to have millions of unemployed. Uh, right now, I think the unemployment rate is 11, 10 to 11 percent. Uh, oh, it's it, like astronaut. It went astronomically up in the United States, right? Right. It, like, yeah. it, but but uh, we're not really going to be sure what the real final floor is until we see how the reopening goes. Right. Um, and you add in something I believe, which is that there's a long term tendency for the economy to go into crisis. This isn't just caused by the pandemic but that there was an underlying instability uh in the economy and that the problems that were already there are just being exacerbated so yeah. we're going to see a very long-term kind of deep we could be seeing something that makes the great depression look small okay and this is slavoj we have to circulate capital even if we all die this is capitalism, <laughs> right. right like so right yeah. So I'm sorry, you, Slavoj, like, you're a great <laughs> I guy. I love Slavoj. You know, I, I, as I said before, I've interviewed him, and I consider him to be uh, a yeah, great, great thinker. Um, but nonetheless, so we're seeing these conditions coming. Wouldn't right. you say that... The rapture. That, that uh, <laughs> well, it's I'm not... Kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> kind of. Like, I, it's not the rapture, because in the rapture, you know, there's massive death, but there's these, this, the souls are taken up. Right, that we have no true, guarantee. Yeah. There's no guarantee of any souls being taken up here. All we know for sure is that many, many people are going to suffer, even while we have all the ideas and technology and real wealth to feed the world many times over. Right. Yeah. No. This is this is. Don't uh, on, Peter. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Peter. 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 Oh, Just let let Douglas finish. I'm yeah, sorry. So wouldn't I'm you sorry. say that 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 at this moment? the need for the working class to intervene, to be supported in struggles for their own demands yeah, is sure. paramount. And, that, that, sure. and that, that's what I want Marxists to do. I want Marxists right. to come together and say, we support the Amazon workers, we support the teachers, we support the unemployed, we support uh, suffering immigrants who don't get, a, you know, are, are being oppressed and, and, and maybe are unemployed too right now and also live on subsistence wages. Right. We want them to come together and organize to demand the their own interests. Yeah. The poor, right? Who's going to save yeah. the poor? Well, no, the workers. Do you think it's going to be the government? Do you think it's going to be like the elites? No. Do you think they're the going to save the them? Elites, the elites' job is to... The guys who are in charge of redistribution? No, they're not going to save them. No, not at all. They have to so, save themselves. They, they have to save, save themselves. Them. Interesting. It's very anarchistic. Well, no, it's, it's very Marxist. Marxist thought that the, the working class had to emancipate itself. And how the will work, they save themselves? They'll have to take charge of the mode of, they'll, 
Well, they have to take charge of the mode of production and change the way we create the world so that these contradictions stop happening. And right. that wow. may, that will mean that they'll run up against the property relations of the, the and and some of the laws of they the existing will, order. They will be set before kings, right, who will call themselves under the name of Christ. They will be tortured. They will experience the end of the world, the judgment day, the, if you would, hell will be knocking on their doors. And in those days, men shall seek death, and, or what's it called? Men shall run away from life and seek death. They shall not find it. They shall desire to die, but death shall flee from them. Right? It's going to be awful. Continue. Well, I wouldn't put it in that religious language, but, you know, I would say they will, they will be thrown from their homes. Uh, right. They will be conflict in the streets with the police. They'll be beaten. They will, they will possibly be beaten. When they have knees beaten, on their necks. When they're, not, be, when they're not beaten, they'll the struggle to just meet, get the, their, the, the food that they, they need. And when they do get the food, the people making it will sometimes die for being put in the position of having to make their food. Totally. But, you, know, you know, so, yeah, there's a, uh, uh, so they will be, be pressed upon them to say no more. We have a better view of society. We, we have a better way of creating the world, not just a better view, a better way. How of do they initiate it? Well, what I think do? it's probably do do it violently? Be, I don't know. I don't know okay. if it's going to be a general strike. I don't know. But I, it may not happen at all. They may just allow for another world war to occur. They may just allow themselves to be sacrificed Ouch. for this economy. <laughs> That's, there's no guarantees here at all. Right. Well, you know, that's very anti-Marxist of you in a way, right? Because this is what, different, what, what differentiated Marx in his, this is what he got from Hegel, right? The deterministic aspects of Marxism um, from the anarchists who argue that, you know, unlike this idea of progress where the world follows these patterns and these patterns are almost guaranteed regardless of individuals that no one's going to stop what Hegel comes. Listen, it depends God's on how you... March their history. It, the anarchists thought the world was unchanged. It you depends know? upon how you interpret the holy doctrine of Marx as to whether you think he was a determinist and thought there would necessarily be a revolution <laughs> or whether or not, <laughs> or whether or not, you know, but then again, it comes down to that determinism, volunteerism kind of debate. Do, do we think that we have to come together with the ideas necessary to transform the world and therefore come up with the new mode of production and, and think and create, or do we think that the world itself will lead us to the promised land through some determined action, which could be include. Marx just thought it was, was organic, though, right? Like, if you look at, if you read the the manifesto, uh, this if, is. If so, Trump, why did he? Why did he advocate for anything? Why did he bother to write? If he thought it was because he all thought he out. was still a part of that history, right? Um, it's it's this idea that you you know, and really, this also Lenin's contribution. You should still volunteer. Again, the shape of volunteerism and Marxism is a bit different. Um, but you should still be part of the insurgency, regardless. To to not to avoid it, to be conservative, is to delay the inevitable. And that it's a beautiful argument, by the way. I'm not trying to knock it. I'm just saying the anarchists, they theirs is more unchanged. Um, you know, this is something like arguably like Nietzsche, uh, the Greek conservative thinker. How do you know that the progress isn't darker than the world we have now? But then Pinker came along and slapped Nietzsche across the face and said, read my book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this idea well, that, you know, the angels yeah. of our nature, we're doing great, Nietzsche, shut up. Yeah, look, there's, <laughs> so no, who there's, knows, but. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's any guarantees that the changes that we try to make won't fail. 
We, except for what we can reason in advance. Right, but if, if they fail to be inevitable. This is why in the, just to go back to the rule, not the rulers, the concentration camps uh, for the Nazis, uh, there were these psychological studies to see who would be the less likely to break down. Uh, for Jews, they were one of the most likely to break down uh, in like psychologically in the concentration camps because in their cosmology, uh, when you're the chosen people, it means, it, in a very, I would say, popularly in Judaism in a common stream, that you know the covenant between you and God is one of your people will continue, and we mean like uh, you know Abrahamic covenant. Your uh, your offspring, your seed will become like the saints, count innumerable, like the saints, the grains of sand on the beaches and the stars. So they they were losing their minds with the Holocaust, but when it comes to the two groups that were least likely to break down, I love this, our boys, those Jehovah's Witness guys, and then also the Marxists. Because the Marxists were like, man, you know, all this, this is just trying to get in the way of the inevitable, man. You think it's killing me. I don't care. Individuals don't matter. It's about the, it's progress, man. Uh, okay. Well, I would, and, and, uh, I would Jehovah's break like, down yeah. in, in a concentration camp. I, I, you know, I, I am not the kind of Marxist who thinks that what happens in the here and now uh, and you know, next week doesn't matter. I do think that, you know, we're we'll after to materialize uh, the changes and, and that it's not guaranteed for us in advance. That's very unmarxist. I love well, it. Okay. <laughs> we'll end it there. We'll end it there. Okay. And if anyone's watching, this interview turned into more of a moderation on my part where I found it <laughs> extremely entertaining and enlightening to watch Doug and Peter have it out. If you all want a <laughs> yeah. part two, please comment about it. Yeah. Have a good one, Doug. Oh, Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay.